Hi, I'm Bradley Smart, President and CEO of S-Smart, here to tell you all about BruceFest, the definitive Bruce Campbell Film Festival, returning to the Stanley Hotel this December 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. Join us for an intimate weekend with 300 other true Bruce Campbell fans for a world-exclusive first look at a piece from Evil Dead Rise. Bruce will be joined by special guest Ted Raimi for screenings, signings, photo opportunities, a cocktail party, a props exhibit featuring pieces from Sam Raimi's private collection, an immersive mystery set in the Evil Dead universe, and so much more. Tickets and info can be found at brucefest.co. We can't wait to see you there. And remember, shop smart, shop S-smart. Hello and welcome to Colors of the Dark. I'm your co-host Rebecca McKendry and with me is Elric Kane on a very fucking rainy Tuesday night in Los Angeles. How are you doing? It is spooky weather. It's spooky to try to drive in pitch black surfaces in this town. People just aren't used to driving the rain in LA because we have 75 degrees weather for the entire year. The entire Uh, year and then it rains like two days and the world ends. I've tried to explain this to people on the East Coast because they make fun of it because I'm like, Oh, I don't, I don't, I got to add an extra hour to my commute. It's raining. Yeah, and you get and flash like, flood warnings on your phone. I'm driving home. It says, do not drive home right now. Stop your car. Flash flooding. And I'm like, it's hardly sprinkling. I swear to God, like I'm driving going, wait a minute. There's hardly like any water hitting me and I'm getting a flash flood warning. So I don't know. You know, I used to make fun of that until there was one night I, we had gotten all these flash flood warnings. And this is back when I lived in North Hollywood and I was driving from North Hollywood to the Burbank Target. And I had gotten all these flash flood warnings and I was like, it's fucking LA. This It's been raining for 10 minutes. It's not going to flash flood. And I drive through this puddle on, um, oh gosh, what Empire Street right there on the way from North Hollywood to Burbank. And I hydroplaned for easily oh, yeah. 20 yards. Oh, that's scary. Like it yeah. was standing water on the road. And it's just LA's not equipped for this shit. No, like the not. roads are not built for heavy rain to fall. And so it just sits there and you can't see it. So I get it now. And it's election day. It's like a double whammy. So th- Oh my God, the are, world's falling there's, apart. There's voting, there's rain. What other chaos? I think we should uh, hide from reality and delve into horror to escape all our real fears. That's the way to go. Well, I... I got to give a good plug up top. So the fine folks at Tombstone Pizza sent us over a bunch of Tombstone pizzas. Wait, so where I've are these? Eating... What the hell? I know. Where do I get my Tombstone get, get your ass down to Burbank. I've got like a freezer full oh of Tombstone God. pizzas right now. And they're really good. And I just ate Supreme Pizza for dinner. And it was amazing. And so you need to call. Tombstone, you got to get, get my address, buddies. Get some Tombstone. Okay. I got, I got. I got some for you in the freezer. Come by. Say hi. Tombstone pizzas for everybody. So thank you so much, Tombstone, for catering at least my podcast tonight. It was lovely. Man, (laughs) I love pizza. (laughs) Well, with that, let's dig into some of our fine horror viewing this week, Um, because we watched a lot of the same stuff, I think. I think a few. You you actually convinced me a couple days ago to watch something that... Let's start with that. I'm going to throw a span in the works. Okay. We never do this. Okay. There's a show that's basically, I'm just done. I'm just done. Not going to do it anymore because I'll always watch a couple episodes. 
and be into it. And then somewhere it tapers off. And if I stick with it to the end, it's always some crazy ending and I'm just done. And that's American horror story. Just not, not as I'm not throwing shade at that series. I just personally can't do it anymore. And then a couple of days ago, you write to me and you're like, Oh man, the new series is so good. And I'm like, Oh damn you. I don't want to watch it. And then you said, but it's basically cruising. And I'm like, and you said cruising mixed with Zodiac, which is exactly correct. And so yes. I watched the first two episodes last night. I'll let you talk about it more, but I will say it com- the first one actually just completely got me because it right? it is exact in fact recreating even scenes from cruising like like the mm-hmm. the, the, the handkerchief the black the, whole- the black cop with the cowboy hat in one of the most memorable moments in cruising one of the most outrageous things is like recreated yeah. in the show uh but Perfect. but it also feels different enough to not feel like mm-hmm. I'm because it's not about an undercover cop at the state so so on that level I'm like oh okay this is a different version and um so yeah I'm I'm glad I actually checked it out I, I I'm gonna try to stay with it because I, d- I did find it pretty compelling so yeah, I had like Elric. I have fallen off American Horror Story as of late. Like I- I- if I look back at my history with the season, every season I watch a few less episodes. Like I think I made it all the way through Freak Show, and that's probably the and and then there was like 1984. I made it most of the way through last season. They did like two different things, and I made it part of the way through the first one. And it just seems like every season I'm just falling off more and more. Um, and I'll also say for the past past couple of seasons I've opened it even the first episode I've kind of been like eh mm. I don't know I'll try to keep going like it hasn't enthused me I have not been like I am with evil or some of the other like we're going to talk about cabinet of curiosity in a sec yeah. some of the other shows I watch where I'll literally find myself like at work you know teaching classes thinking man I can't wait to go home and watch that next episode like it's nothing that I'm actually lusting for um but a couple of nights ago, I had seen somebody post up on Twitter like, holy shit, new season of American Horror Story is completely out of left field. It's not following any of the stuff that they have set up before. It is based on cruising. And that was enough for me. I was immediately like, I'm in. So it is American Horror Story, New York City, but specifically it's New York City, 1981. And our main protagonist, of course, because it's American Horror Story, there's a couple of them, but our main protagonist, it's a New York detective who is in, um, he's gay and he's in a relationship with one of the head writers, he may actually be the editor, for the New York Native, which is the big gay newspaper coming out around this time period. We're also following a doctor. Oh, well, let back up, because this is the part that I thought was most interesting about the (laughs) show is that cop you just mentioned is closeted. So he he's in a gay relationship mm-hmm. with this guy who writes for a very public thing, but he's completely in like, denial. Yeah. He's left his wife for this guy, but he is like around the other cops. He doesn't allude to anything, which makes yeah. for a lot of tension between them because one is trying to live his life proudly. Well, and so it's, it's taking place at that really interesting intersection where so many people yes. were living closeted or they were living la- loud and proud. And then a silent killer in real life being AIDS, you know, obviously came ripped through uh, the community in, in our reality. And I get the feeling that's obviously part of what the story is going to be about. Yeah, so you're getting these undercurrents that there is this disease that this scientist has discovered that is kind of about to, and she keeps saying, you know, it's going to start spreading to humans. And so you get the idea of this undercurrent of disease coming in. But specifically what it's following is a serial killer in the gay 
nightclub scene of New York City in the early 1980s. So it's a lot of cruising. You can really feel a lot of cruising infused in. It's also got this Zodiac because it's very much like that the cops aren't really paying a lot of attention. It's just kind of like these killings are happening and they're kind of like, eh, it's New York. What do you want from us? Um, And especially in the gay community that the cops are just kind of writing it off as, well, that's a you problem. You guys figure it out. And it's not structured the way that I feel like a lot of American Horror Story seasons have been. It's not pushing the horror. Like it is, it's scary, but it is slow burn. And I would honestly equate it more to like the first season of True Detective. Well, it's actually like his, I agree with that, but it's also like what's, what it's, it's almost a misnomer putting it under American Horror Story, whereas um, the Mm -hmm. same creator, he has that other series called American Crime Story, and it fits that perfectly structurally, Mm -hmm. and and they've been much stronger, to be honest, like the OJ one and stuff like that. Um, It feels more like that, but by putting it under American Horror Story, it makes it kind of intriguing because it's going to find other kind of audience, I think. Yeah. And so it it is not quite as like, you know, you're thrown into a slashers or you know a crazy carnival or cannibals on the first day it is like this just slow burn detective story in this incredibly textured dynamic setting it does have some of the same people that we've seen in prior american horror story series but they're really well used like sandra bernhardt's back patty lapone's back um some of the same actors that i recall from prior seasons but just really really well used yeah i'm, I'm um, very curious how many i've only watched two episodes and I'm three. You got to get to the third because it's the blackout. The big New York City blackout of the early 1980s is the third season and it's fucking wild. I might watch it tonight. Well, what's cool? Yeah, it's cool because like you said, it's more like Zodiac in the sense of, yeah, it's like this impromptu investigation uh, by people Mm -hmm. who aren't listened to and marginalized. And I get the feeling it feels maybe a more personal series to the creator than where he's been. And so maybe that's why it's upping the production value saying, but also, you know, two words, Big Daddy. Big Daddy. Big Daddy. Big Daddy is the serial killer. It is or, a, or a ghost. I can't tell because or a ghost. Yeah, of, that's true. He kind of appears yeah. and then he's like this big, uh, masked, big, uh, muscly, muscle bound, almost like a giant um, figure, uh, which is just you know with the gimp face, the gimp mask or whatever. You know, it's like pretty, pretty scary to see in a park at night. You know, so and I, and I've, I'm a, such a big fan of things like this where it's like it's about like if you can build empathy, people who might stumble upon the series, it might open their eyes to things they didn't understand. And, you yeah. know, which is the best thing you can do with art, you know, uh, but you no, know, like the characters, the characters in this season are really compelling as well. Like it does feel really personal to the creator. Yeah. I'm sure it is um, because the characters in this are far better than I've seen in seasons back of American horror. So, and I did that accidentally. Like you mentioned it. You didn't tell me I had to. I, I just I think I couldn't find a movie to watch last night and put one on. And I was actually quite surprised how into what I got by, you know, by the end, I was like, oh, wow, no, I really need to know how this goes. So that was good. So I'm glad we yeah. started there. So watch the third episode. That's as far as I've made it. But the third episode was really good. Okay. Um, so keep going and Excellent. I'll watch the fourth episode. So I'm now going to come back with one that you had recommended to me that I never had any intention of watching that I was also pleasantly surprised with. And that is Run, Sweetheart, Run. This one is on Amazon Prime right now. And I had seen this come out and just kind of disregarded it because I thought it was a rape revenge film. Which I which, thought that that which was it kind of is, but not it kind of but is, radically. But that's not. where yeah. 
that's where I thought it like it rooted itself and that's where it dies is it is um a rape revenge film and it is that's like the first first 20 minutes act. it's it's yeah pre- first 20 it, minutes it's depending on you believing that and it's depending on our knowledge of how we feel about those movies because everything mm-hmm. that happens up to a point is just that but we don't see the rape it, it even does something if there's even a rape there's some sort of attack what it's really clever about almost in a it threw me off in the moment, but it's like got this Haneke thing where the character will like look at the camera and say, no, you don't look at this, pushes the camera away almost to look somewhere else while the bad thing happens. Very unusual. That was where I was it's like, what? so <laughs> self-aware. Yeah, no, really I don't strange. want you looking yeah. at this. And then she'll push the camera yeah. away, which is wild because it really crosses this fourth wall. And then it's also got these moments where like words will appear on the screen telling the main character what to do. Yeah. Um, which is wild as well. Like it's, it's it's this really stylistic editing and and structure to it. But the whole setup is this girl. Um, she works for this high powered businessman. Her name is Cherry Cherie. Sorry, Cherie. Um, and she her she is accidentally she doesn't think it's an accident, but her boss calls her up, claims that he ha- she has accidentally double booked him. He has to go to this anniversary dinner with his wife, but she also booked him on a client dinner. And so he is begging her. He can't screw up his anniversary. Can you please take the client dinner? It's just this really wealthy dude. He just wants to be affiliated with the company. Just go. And she gets there and he's charming and he's really attractive and he's really wealthy and they have a great time and they go roller skating. They seem to have a really good time together. Except for the dog. There's a dog that barks. Yeah. It's great. They go to that. They go to that sushi restaurant in LA that I've been to once that I always want to go back to. That's like up on a hill. And it's supposed to be like the best sushi in LA. Um, And this dog approaches him and starts going nuts. And then all of a sudden he wigs out. He has this momentary just break where he's like, control your fucking dog. And then, yeah. You see behind the mask for a second, but he is mm -hmm. charming and very wealthy. And they have actually a good, they're having a good date. Go back to his house. He offers her a drink. And then we don't see what happens. We just hear it. The camera starts pulling back on the front door as we hear what's going on. And then 30 seconds later, she comes bursting out bloody. And now she is running from him as he chases her through the city. And I'm going to stop there because there's more to it. There is so many twists that happen. But let me just say, it's not a standard rape revenge film. It is so much Yeah, it's basically, unfortunately, it is actually not possible to talk about it without kind of giving away. What I will say is, yes, it's not a traditional movie. Uh, The tone, uh, because I also talked to another friend of mine about this when I, because I was really confused as I was watching it. Because as (laughs) I was watching it, not knowing because I kind of told you, oh, there's these weird twists. I told another person to watch it and said, trust me. But when I was watching it, of course, I just thought it was what it was. And then there's a part where she's, you know, a character kind of comes in. I'm like, this is so not realistic. Like, this, why isn't the cop stopping him? Like, I had all these questions. And then it starts taking turns in ways that I was not expecting. It becomes a different genre movie almost. Uh, the movie, Completely. The movie that it reminded me of that I like a little more than this is called Running Scared. It had Paul Walker and it's like a dark fairy tale one night you know in kind of it's a crazy movie that you can't really classify this is like that where it's really hard to classify so it's a good blind watch you might parts of it might frustrate you parts are on the nose other parts are really creative it's it's a bit of a mix for me but it Mm -hmm. was interesting yeah like the scene in the car with the girls, I'll be vague when I say that. I found to be yeah. very on the nose. Yeah, there's a few of those, um, I think. But there's other parts. And the thing, the main thing I would say is Ella Belinska, who's the lead, is fantastic. She is so, so good. good. This is 
so well. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd hire her in a thing. second after this movie. And, and the bad guy, uh, Pilu Asback, I think he's from South Africa or somewhere. Mm-hmm. He, oh no, from I think he's from Denmark. He's excellent too. So they're both. It's you have two people kind of going head to head for a whole movie who are really you know on the same level, which is kind of exciting. And this is Amazon Prime original, um, you know, and play, had a good festival run. Um, so and directed by Shana Feste, who she's mm-hmm. actually made some pretty big non horror films. Yeah, uh, you know, over the last few years. So, you know, interesting film. I'm glad you I'm glad you watched it before the show because I, I kind of yeah. just needed to talk to be like, what am I watching? This is not what I was yeah. expecting, you know? No, it was definitely I won't call it a perfect film. There are parts that I was kind of like, oh, I don't know. That yeah. that's a little on the nose yeah. for me. But that said, I really liked the places that it went and I did not expect it in any capacity. And always well made. That's the thing. It's it's mm-hmm. when it's on the nose, it's more on the writing level. Uh, but all, the direction is always strong and uh yeah. intriguing. Um, you know, and yeah. it's on Amazon Prime right yeah, now. So, they made yeah. it, so it'll probably always be there because yeah. I think it's a pickup from them. I have to, I have to mention one that you haven't seen. I don't think, and probably will never see unless I mention it now. Uh, I was never going to watch this movie. I remember when it came to theaters, I was like, "Oh God, what is this? Where we're back to?" This is the one that I almost watched. Is this, this the one that one? looks like Twilight and the Vampire Diaries? And it's called the invitation. the invitation. So I didn't. Somebody asked me when they saw it on Letterboxd because I wrote unrated version. And they're like, what's the difference? I'm like, I don't fucking know. I didn't watch this movie beforehand. You think I watched the other version? It's like, I'm only watching this one version. Uh, so un- I think it wasn't unrated in theaters. It's unrated. I'm not kidding. I pushed play because a friend of mine, I have access to his movies and he had paid for this. So I probably wouldn't have pushed play otherwise. It was late at night one night. I was like, oh, is this just going to be Twilight? And I'll tell you what. The nice thing about this movie, I thought this would be like a two-star movie for me. I gave it three stars. I, the cool thing about it, it's very lavishly made, it, like those movies, um, but it's way more fucked up than those movies. It does have, at its core, a bit of the, but what Twilight has and Vampire Diaries has, but it's way darker. I mean, it opens with a crazy beheading, and I was like, oh, I wonder if that was in the other version. So it's basically this uh, this, uh, this young, um, probably like 20-something, she has lost her mom. She gets a uh, DNA test and one of these t- take-home kits. She does it just does on a lark. And it says, oh, you have all these British cousins you didn't know about. And she's like from Chicago or something. And she's like, oh, that's interesting. And uh, one of them happens to be coming to town. And he meets her and says, you know, you should come to this amazing wedding family members you've never met so she's in other words her wound is you know no family and here comes this new family saying you should come and meet all these people you've never known about and she's kind of like eh, and he's like i'll pay for it and so too good to be true she goes to this lavish you know you know castle type scenario and it's very clear as an audience I, I don't care about spoiling some of this it's like it's very clear that there's gonna be vampires in this movie and that the main guy is probably gonna be a vampire anyway she meets these people who are, are going to be at this wedding and the main guy is a total stud who is Thomas Doherty. He's been on tons of teeth. Uh, so I know him from the Descendants movies where uh, he plays um, Ursula's daughter's best friend, I Harry. I have seen Pope. them with kids too. And yeah. he is. He's very, he's very. He's a total stud in this, yeah. Yeah, he's very attractive with this incredibly kind of gaunt, dark features. Yeah, Yeah, which is good for for this. And Sean Pertwee's kind of like the hand, Sean Pertwee's from um, 
uh, dog soldiers and he, he's been in tons of stuff, but he he's really good mm-hmm. as the hand. But what's cool about it is um, what surprised me. I'm watching it go, oh, it's just like Twilight. Or and then suddenly, you know, naked woman walks out of hot spa pool, completely nude in one scene. And then there's a scene where they're having a couple are having sex and there's a pretty crazy. And then there's a really crazy beheading or something. And I was like, okay, so it is like those, but it is able to push. Maybe it's just the unrated version. I don't know. It's able to push harder. And therefore, for me, became far more intriguing because I was like, and I got to say, it had some pretty fun stuff. I, she, again, she was really good. Her name's Nathan, Natalie Emmanuel, um, and she was fantastic, too, as the lead in this film. So I was like taken by that. I, look, it's not going to be an Elric favorite by any means, but I thought it was going to be like unwatchable for me. And actually, I thought it was quite fun. So I had thought about watching this one. I looked it up for two reasons. So first, this is produced by Sam Raimi. This is a ghost house picture. Really? And immediately, yeah. Yeah, this is a Sam Raimi ghost house. And immediately I was like, he usually produces bonkers stuff out of ghost house. Like, I have liked most of their films. I was definitely intrigued by that because they don't pull any punches on the horror. Like, it's always really intense. Um, And so that intrigued me. And the second one being... This took number one at the box office the weekend it opened. Mm. And I it wasn't like it didn't like sweep. It wasn't like a smile where it made like yeah. 200 million or something crazy like that. It was um very much that it kind of snuck in under the radar and then just happened to be number one. Like it was a lower ranking one, but it was number one. And I know this, I was um, for a research project I was doing, I was on NPR a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was looking at all of the number one horror films from the year. And I was like, I've seen every single one except this one. What the heck invitation. So it was, it was number one, the weekend. It it feels, um, and the ad campaign too, feels kind of nineties. If, reminds mm-hmm. me of like queen of the damned and those kind of movies but it's actually but once you start watching it yeah it's got the setting of some of that kind of stuff but not really the movie it, it like i said it's a it's better than i thought it would be so the trailer made it look like girl it made it look very twilight yeah. teen girl decides to join up with bougie vampires and they look way bougie and that was kind of what i took uh, from the what i will tell you because this is what separates it from twilight because in twilight the vampires are actually quite nice by the end uh, the people in this are actually nasty. And so the world might seem seductive, but as it turns, that is not, ple- it does not look like a pleasant thing. And so that's why I kind of think it's a little more interesting because it gets a little more gnarly once it goes there. That surprised me enough to be like, oh, that was watchable. I kind of enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it in that part of you that goes, ah, sometimes you feel like seeing something that's a bit more lavish and not mm-hmm. many people make lavish horror is set in period or you know even though it's contemporary it looks period because of the you know the the castle and the kind of family so on that level it might if that's something you sometimes miss i would give it a shot excellent well i am going to take us to um one that you have not seen that i checked out on netflix and i watched this because i saw a bunch of our friends posting up that they had seen it on letterbox and they weren't giving it very good reviews hmm. to be honest like they was definitely like giving it like two and a half stars and so i decided to watch it um because i have netflix on my phone and i was on the treadmill and was like hey let's just see what this is and i've really enjoyed it like i don't do rankings on letterbox but i would have given this like hmm. three stars if not more and this is hellhole hmm. It is a Polish film, and the concept of it is um, it's set in the 80s, 1987, 
a Polish police officer is investigating these kind of mysterious disappearances that are happening around this town, specifically surrounding this really remote monastery that has this really um, dedicated, isolated enclave of monks that never leave the monastery, have no communication with the outside world. And so in order to investigate it, because he believes that they have something to do with the disappearances, he decides to pretend he is a monk and join the clergy there. And so he shows up, they search all of his luggage to make sure he doesn't have anything. They throw away his cigarettes. And then suddenly he rips open this special compartment in his suitcase and he's got a gun and all this crazy stuff and notebooks. And he's ready to go doing his research. And first off, you think that it is just like this very, very devoted, very, um, just they live very um basic monastery where the food is gross they have no pleasures it's just absolute like misery and then you realize that they actually run a sanitarium that there are all these people living there that are supposedly like mentally insane but that the monks think that they're not insane they're possessed by spirits and that is what they have become known for is performing these exorcisms on their patients i'll put in quote marks there um but they have a really low survival rate like a lot of the people that they perform these exorcisms on die and the exorcisms are huge where like the bed shakes and the candles blow up and there's wind and people going crazy and everybody is seeing stuff like all of the the people who are supposedly possessed are like seeing crazy shit and the day after he goes into the exorcism room and he realizes that it's all like parlor tricks that the candles are set hooked up to gas so they can blow up at any point and then um it keeps getting and that he finds needles where they're like injecting all of these supposedly insane people with drugs so they actually are seeing stuff during the exorcisms and then that is like the first 10 minutes of the Mm. movie it keeps getting weirder and weirder and weirder as he figures out what is going on at this monastery. And admittedly, I never saw any of it coming, which was really cool. Um, Some of these, some of the twists in this movie, there was one twist in this movie that I need you to see. I can't talk about it on air because it is a big spoiler, big spoiler, but I have never seen it done in a movie before. And it may be the most baller move ever ever in an entire film um where i just that's pretty that's pretty big uh if it's i couldn't even believe that they went this direction and then kept it going and somehow it worked and there was a point where i was like wait what wait you can't do that no film law says you cannot just do that and just let it go um it can't be more baller than that uh devil inside ending where it's just like no please please, for the rest of the story please go to the website just go to the website (laughs) no this was not that type of baller move this was like a wait what this is you can't do that and then it turned out great okay um and it has some really good horror imagery in it especially in the third act when the world gets really huge and chaotic and blows up um it's got some crazy cool horror imagery it's got some really wild creature stuff that comes in towards the end i feel like Um, you're still the last person interested in like um exorcisms and priests and nuns and catholic i know i feel like when i see trailers for movies like that i'm like oh becca will go to that but i'm always like does the rest of the world care i'm I'm curious why do you Probably think not. why do you think the people who gave it bad ratings 
were feeling that way is there a reason i question okay. if they made it to the end ah, to be honest yeah. because i gotta say the third act did things that i've never seen mm-hmm. before that i was all types of excited about but the first two do feel like this very kind of standard exorcism movie mm-hmm. um especially at the beginning where you're literally watching priests do exorcisms in a very exorcist style with the bed shaking and the person being exercised freaking out and writhing and candles shooting up it feels very as we know of the exorcist. i still and- want you to see um exorcism of god which is the one i saw earlier this year which is from this is year that the- is that a cat three no no it's-, it's it's a new film and it happens to star the actor who was in my last short from years ago as the main priest and i think i told you about it but the reason is i've told friends at least watch the first 10 minutes because it's literally i'm just I'll, I'll repeat this part again a priest is performing an exorcist on a young girl right or yeah she's probably like 15 uh-huh. and the, it's just the typical scenario and the devil's inside her for real and he's trying to do his best and then at a certain point he's like get out of her get out of her it suddenly leaps out of her and goes into him and he has sex with her <gasps> And that, so the priest performing the exorcism who now has the devil inside him has sex with the girl. And then it cuts to years later and you can only imagine what the, so it cuts to like the priest has no knowledge afterwards. It's like him years later. It's the craziest single moment. I think I saw this year when you said bowler. I just was watching the wow. screen. Going, like you said, I was like, wait, you can't do that. <laughs> It'd be like if father Karras suddenly had that thing in him and he's having sex with London player. It was really quite bonkers. Uh, that one's called the exorcism of God. So as we talk about crazy, uh, exorcist movies um which actually funnily enough i watched uh, the exorcist for the first time in a few years and halloween just before halloween with students and it was so so good so good just it just mm-hmm. except i realized and this will disturb you too uh exact same age as mox von Sydow was when he was in that movie wow yes, exact age this year he is the age we are when he is basically uh what 80 year old man in our brain yeah he was, he was not he was under he was, in his, he was he under was in dick, his 40s? dick smith makeup what? and i and afterwards honestly i think it's the best better than any of the creature effects in that movie is the makeup on him and his performance is so as a kid i a hundred percent believed he was an old man and so when you watch game of thrones and he finally is that age like now it kind of fucks your head up because you're like, wait a minute, you're this age 40 years ago. But he wasn't. He was the, I, it really, I was actually a little shocked when I saw that. I was like, whoa. Uh, he was probably the same age as Jason Miller, actually. They're probably about the exact same age when they did that movie. Jason Miller might have been a couple years older. Um, so anyway, that was my little, but but it held up. I, they're watching the director's cut with the spider walk. It, you know, it's just, it's such a well-made movie. It's, mm-hmm. and it's hard to scare me with Priest. And I think that's what I'm getting at when you're talking about your movie. It's like at this point now with Priest, because because so much of the population doesn't believe or non-believers or apathetic about religion. It means, you know, when The Exorcist came out, that wasn't the case. It shook people because there was such a, a stronger family and stuff was structured around the church more culturally. And so it just, yeah, it's it's hard for me to know how you could make a film like that now and still be like relevant and scary. I'm sure there's a way. There's always a way. But um, anyway, you're the target audience. I want you to see that other one with the first. Okay. Um, I remember you telling me about that, uh, yeah. the exorcism of God yeah. one now. I mean, and I, so I can't like, rate. I, I, I'll watch the first 10 yeah, minutes. Just watch up to that because it's pretty bonkers the way it goes down. Uh, 
Yeah, I watched so oh, anyway, yeah, yeah. that one was Hellhole on Netflix. Not the old 80s. There's an 80s. Movie Not the old 80s Hellhole about the surgeon. Yeah. This is very much about a monastery. Okay. And it is, I will say, first act, slow burn. Plan on plan on a slow burn. Uh, there's one I paid for a couple of nights ago before I realized that like in a week it comes to Shutter, probably even by the time this comes out. But I would recommend it to people, especially um, younger. It was a, the only criticism I have of this movie. I liked everything about it. I didn't love it, and I think it was just because it was a little young for me. I felt it just skewed a little younger, and that is called Slash Back. And this is a First Nations uh, film, all cast as First Nations, basically, from Canada. And it's being hailed, and it's rightly so. It's not as good as either of these movies, but it's fun. Uh, Attack the Block meets the thing. And so it's Mm -hmm. got elements of both of those. And it's just a small group of these girls on on this, like, I guess it's a version of a reservation, a little different in Canada. It's like a hamlet of like near the near the water. And they're kind of like just hanging out. They're probably like 14, 15. They're all just hanging out. And one day they just see this weird kind of uh, this polar bear acting super weird and they and it kind of attacks one of them and you have this weird black goo on it and you very much like the thing and it starts to like get to people who are chasing them down and it can kind of it can smell uh the blood on you if you get touched by it and and it really is a pretty a to b in terms of like the story and what we've seen before with the creature effects but what's original is the kind of voice of the characters and it's kind of like like i've been enjoying watching res dogs and it reminds me of that just the slang and the lingo and the kind of just hanging out they're very modern kids Mm -hmm. i think people will dig it if you know but again i think it, it probably skews a little bit more to like you know, if you're 14, 15, that might be even more fun for, for that kind of movie. But I thought it was pretty cool, but it will be on Shutter really soon. So that's called Slashback. This one looks really neat. Okay, I'm in on this one. It does have, it looks like it has um, very much kind of a, a cool vibe yeah, to it. Yeah, I think you'd enjoy I, get, I see both those movies come out immediately. That's neat. Yeah. Okay, I'm in for that one. Okay, so before we get to kind of the big one that we're discussing, um, that we're going to go through, I'll give three quick And I have plugs. one little so, one, too, so after you go. Yeah, so three um, quick plugs. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these, but I at least want to mention them because they were all fun watches. Um, so this was actually recommended to me by one of our listeners, I believe on Twitter, had said, hey, have you been watching the Terry uh, Tierra Incognito show on uh, Disney Plus? And I was like, nope, okay, I'll watch it. If it's on Disney Plus, I can usually convince my kids to watch it as well. Um, Tierra Incognito. And so it means like secret land. Um, So closed, it's basically like a closed down amusement park exists in this little Argentinian town. It's an Argentinian show. Um, And it is about a a group of um, specifically a, a boy whose parents went missing kind of without a trace years ago. And he starts thinking that it may have something to do with this closed down amusement park in town. So he and his friends start investigating the closed down amusement park. I'll end there, but yeah. it's fun. It's very YA. This is not an adult show, um, but I've been having an absolute blast with it. So this is um, eight episodes right now. And I watched all eight with my kids and thought it was an absolute blast. It's a little old for, I'll say my six-year-old, but because it was still a closed down amusement park, like there's some really good scares in this, the way that they're using the amusement park and using um, the haunting within it, that it does have like a ghost uh, side to the amusement park. 
So next up, I'll say I watched Curse of Bridge Hollow, which was one of Netflix's big YA releases for the Halloween season. This one, I had fun with it, to be honest. I mean, like, don't think too hard. Um, This kind of I put it in the same vein as like Hubie Halloween from Mm -hmm. like last year or the year before. We're like, don't think too hard. But as far as Halloween films go, there's just something fun about it. Um, This one's about a teenage girl who is um, the D&D expert girl from um, Stranger Things. Mm -hmm. And and uh, she is in this. She accident. She's brand new in town. She's just moved to town. She accidentally releases this ancient curse on this town that, amongst many things, causes all of the town's Halloween decorations to come to life. Hmm. So the scary clowns that you have in your yard, the giant inflatables, they all come to life. It was really fun, and um, it was just it, just a fun. Don't think too hard, movie. Also on the fun. Don't think too hard movie, not hard, but I have to give some mad props to weird. I loved this film so much. This is the um, weird Al Yankovic. And I'm going to put this in quotes biopic um, because it's completely fictionalized. Like the whole thing, it's just made to be like this rock story. Um, that's par- it, it in itself is a parody. Um, it's, it's doing so many smart things. Mm. It was just an absolute fun ride to watch. This is on Roku television. So if you have Roku, which I do, it just appeared one day and Mm. it was like free to all Roku users. It's got Daniel Radcliffe playing Weird Al. And it was just, it was such a fun ride. And it's also got a lot of people that we know in it, like Jonah Ray was in a band in it. There was a couple of people that we know from um, that kind of circumvent Mm. both the horror scene and the comedy scene that I saw do cameos in it. So definitely pulling some notable faces as well. Interesting. Um, Real quick one, uh, because I kind of want to justify why I didn't like this. Uh, There's a film called Soft and Quiet that got a lot of buzz out of South by. Uh, It's directed by Beth de Arajao, and it was picked up by Blum because it made him feel so uncomfortable, apparently, in the screening he like the film itself he was so captivated he picked it up afterwards and then released it and it's like the technical side i really like i was really impressed like it's all shot in real time literally real time so you're watching this an hour and a half in an hour and a half kind of play out it starts at an elementary school teacher and she's got one kid left behind waits for the mom and then she walks down the street with a little cake she meets this other girl and she's having a meeting with uh, some like-minded people and just seems like a normal kind of teacher story and i'm like oh, okay what is this i wonder what I, I knew nothing about this movie and they start to have this meeting it's like six housewives and a couple younger girls who've to- just come to this meeting and they just start talking and they're kind of it seems very low-key and this is within the first five minutes and then one of them spake to cherry pie and they open lift the tin foil off the cherry pie and on top is a swastika and 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 i was like huh I thought, and then, Wait, she, and I thought, what is the name of this movie it's again? Soft and Quiet just came out. It's on, it's on, Soft. uh, and I was like, what? And then I realized very quickly, like, I thought it was a joke. And then they keep talking, and then it pans out to reveal the, the, the meeting they are at is like Aryan woman, housewives, you know, our voices. Basically, what I've call, called this movie is Last Karen on the Left because uh-huh. it is a, basically the idea of a group of people who are just, it's so overt um and and we obviously the next day actually i did not like this movie but the next day you know at a soccer thing i had there was a bunch of people who were talking like in the hushed version of this like they had some of those attitudes but not as overt this is a completely all on the surface like everyone wears their race and they're like oh that girl who moved in yeah fuck her we gotta take her it's it's fuck it's kind of crazy now my problem with it is it was just so deeply unpleasant to watch 
and I didn't like any of them because of that. And I, uh, it kind of the feeling I had towards the one character in dash cam. It's like all of them are that character in this movie, and <laughs> oh no, and that was hard. But I, it is. But what I want to justify because it got a lot of good reviews on Letterbox too, is because that's the point, right? So the point is about them. It's certainly not making you like these people. But I had also watched Tar earlier that day, which is a mm-hmm. very long film about a very unpleasant white woman <laughs> and a powerful elite, a bit really well played, good movie. But pretty tough. So following it up with this was probably a massive mistake. Um, I just found myself, and they end up basically they they go into a store down the street. I'm going to go up to what the like what the hook is. They go to the store. They're really cruel to this, you know, uh, young uh, Asian sisters who walk in, very racist, overtly tell them get out of the store. And then one of them's like, I know where she lives. We should break into her home when she's not there and play a joke on her. And this becomes last house on the left at the end with these Karen type. And I was just like. So all on the surface, there's a lot of stuff I respect. I do respect the way it's made, but I just deeply, deeply did not enjoy watching. And I and I, look, I like some movies where I don't enjoy watching. So I don't want to put people off. If they go to my letterbox, they'll never watch a movie. But I wanted to at least justify, like, I just didn't, I just couldn't watch these people because it made me feel so crap. And and I didn't necessarily believe there's no one grounded in, like, it's a version of reality, but clearly it's, like, a little heightened. People wouldn't be quite this overt. Well, mm-hmm. probably, maybe somewhere they are. Uh, and it's, but it's a tough one, man. I can see maybe why Blum picked it up, but it's also a unusual for Blumhouse. Let's just say it's not their normal wheelhouse movie. Uh, so, you know, you could give it a try. The, I, I'd say for one reason to watch it is the real-time uh, shooting style. It makes for, you know, it's always compelling to see how somebody approaches that. It's a hard thing mm-hmm. to pull off, so. So that was called Soft and Quiet. Okay. I had not even heard of this. Yeah, one, I stumbled so into definitely... this one from friend's recommendation. He hadn't seen it, but he was like, oh, I heard that was getting buzzed out of South by. Okay. Now I don't talk to that um... friend anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so shall we dig into Del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosity? Yeah, we'll just go. We'll do this as a guide for you guys. We won't spend long on any of them. We will just go title by title. Uh, kind of what it's about, who's in it, and what we might have liked or disliked. And that way you guys have a, if you're, because I have some friends who are kind of cherry picking and some who watched them in order. I went in order um, as much as I wanted to skip to Panos's. I, I, I watched them in order. I took my time. <laughs> so let's, yeah, let's go through them. Okay, so we're going to start at the top with Lot 36. I have to say, this was probably one of my faves of the entire bunch, Um, just because I really enjoyed where it went. I enjoyed the characters. I enjoyed the setup, and I found it to be a fun one. Yeah, it's a pretty good one to start with. I didn't know this is the director I probably knew the least of the directors, Guillermo Mm -hmm. Navarro. I didn't know this director yeah. much at all. And this is Tim Blake Nelson, who's always great, playing an ex-vet. He's a very bitter guy, not a not a pleasant guy who who basically buys off the uh, you know storage lockers of stuff, taking risks on mm-hmm. them uh, for you know in case you get like storage wars or something. Right, a very very gritty, ugly version of that world. And he has paid. Some guys died at the start, and he's ta- he takes us and there's something a couple supernatural uh, type objects in there that lead to some pretty f- surprising. Uh, there's a couple cool creature moments towards the end of this one. Yeah. No, I, I thought this was a good lead off. It, it was, you know, I thought it was solid. It was like a solid. This one. this kept me going very much. Yeah. I was like, okay, that was fun. Let's keep going. Um, the second one, 
I really loved, this is the Graveyard Rats one. This was not like anything I was expecting. And it's really hard for me to make rats scary. Maybe it's just because I'm from New York City where I'm like, they're just there. You just exist with them. Um, But it is about a guy. He is a grave robber and he is also petrified of rats. And so when this you're is period, this product, period piece, yeah, yeah, to, yeah. This is period, I believe, 1800s. Like it that, may yeah. be further back, like 1700s, but it is very period, kind of um, Victorian into the 1800s grave robbing. And um, he hates rats so much and is scared to death of getting sick from them, that they're going to give him some type of disease, that rat bites carry stuff. And um, he goes for this massive score. He hears this woman that is being buried is this incredibly wealthy woman. And she's being buried with every single jewel she ever owned, um, including this sword that or it's a guy It's the sword that um, the king gave him. And um, so he decides to break into his tomb and something happens from there and it gets wild. A lot of rats, some other crazy shit as well that I was not expecting. Yeah, so a couple of things. This one's been Chanzo Natale. So obviously mm-hmm. he directed Cube. And most excitingly, the, the star of this one, the guy who's in every shot of it, is David Hewlett, who is uh, most famous to me and nerds who like Canadian horror. He's the star of Pin, which is one of my favorite Canadian films. Yes. Uh, but he's also the star of Cube. And every he's been in every Vincenzo Natale. I actually interviewed Vincenzo. Yeah, he actually was, uh, they went to high school together. So they've, they've oh. known each other literally since the very beginning which i thought was interesting um i unfortunately for me i saw this one right when it came out and my friend dick just told me that right after they've now uploaded a black and white version of this episode and i think that would be so much better because of the period uh-huh. so i'm kind of bummed i, I kind of might rewatch it in that version because that would suit this particular episode in a big way and i need to look up um i know a lot of these stories were based off of lovecraft stories them, yeah. like there, there's a couple of Coming them up, that yeah. have some some lovecraft uh ba- basis to them this felt like a post story um know, just yeah. in the the kind of victorian turn of the century setting and um the use of rats and things like that i do not know but it just it had a po vibe to me um so i will say this next one that we're going to talk about was my favorite of the entire season. And this is the autopsy. This was my favorite. That was the one I was most looking forward. Well, there's two, uh, two directors here. I was most looking forward to David Pryor being the empty man director. This is the first thing he's made since then. Uh, and has F. Murray Abram. The only thing I would say about a couple of these, uh, not this one so much, but I feel like a couple of them were about 15 minutes too long. Mm-hmm. No, like I'll say this. Yeah, it's just the this, structure. The one coming up was 15 minutes too long for me, but this one I loved the autopsy. This one had amazing sound design for me. I liked where it went. I was not expecting it. It has that same tone that we've seen from this director so far that we saw in The Empty Man, that we saw in his short film, um, AM 1200. Yeah. Um, of it being a cosmic horror that turns body horror. Yeah. And I really, and, and that this is always kind of an alien presence, but the alien presence, you know, is is infused in the body. And somewhat well. intellectual. There's always like a slight mm-hmm. intellectual side to the concepts and the conversation, yeah. which I thought, no, I, I like this one a lot too. And this one, this is the one, probably one of the only, there's two of these I would, I kind of re- want to rewatch. There's only a couple that I'm like curious to kind of go back to. And that's one of them. So, uh, and F. Mary Abrams, such a great actor that he's so yeah. It's, and it's all about a, a, a medical examiner performing an autopsy, obviously on something. And then you realize there's also an alien quality to it. So, uh, so that's a fun one. Uh, the next one. The outside, yeah. Absolutely bonkers. I liked the concept. This is 20 minutes too the, long. The, okay. That's the big, and that's the thing. This of all of them, um, 
maybe most impressed me in terms of like her style of what she's doing but there's just yes. but it just utterly was it's the one that most you most feel like if you had been 20 minutes short your whole the, just the kind of vibe because she's going for like a total Fargo thing right and it's so yes. close in tone to that and it has moments that are freaking funny but because it keeps going it starts to lose that by the end and that's the one that is probably the most hurt by the running time in my opinion because mm-hmm. her performance is incredible this girl you know wants to fit in with these other a woman at her uh, at her bank job, but they're very typical 80s, big hair, you know, uh, fe- uh, feminine females. And she's not. She's like bookish, likes hunting, like stuffing animals. <laughs> she, and she has a husband, Martin Starr, who's a great actor, uh, who's like the local sheriff. And she just starts to lose her mind. And she watches <laughs> late night TV with Dan Stevens <laughs> playing a guru selling a weird product a lotion that will like and she has unfortunately a skin rash this lotion and it just gets really weird but the tone is such a it's such a tight wire but she's actually pulling it off but then it just it's just mm-hmm. a little too long I, I was really impressed this is anna lily amapur uh who, who's you know really solid and really interesting um girl who walks home alone at night um and the bad batch and stuff but this this one yeah again i thought this was very interesting up until a certain point i was like oh this is going to be the standout um, and then I think it's just a little long. Yeah, this one for me, it was great. I loved her approach to it. It just went a little bit long yeah. for me. Um, so next up, we have Pickman's model. Big Lovecraft one, yeah. Yeah, this one was a huge Lovecraft one. This one also went on a little long for me. I really liked the concept of it. I liked the infusion of art, how it was. And this is actually based um, rather loosely off a Lovecraft story of the same name, Pickman's model, um, where it is about this artist who is constantly drawing these dark things, these demons, but they're all incredibly well drawn. And it's about this gentleman who is in art school with him and is just enamored by his ability to draw these, these crazy demons, these other worlds and how detailed they are. And then it follows him over the next couple of years as he gets married. um, And as he becomes reacquainted with this artist about 10 years later, and the artist kind of becomes a family friend and then kind of the source of all of these dark images kind of comes out then i love that you didn't say who the artist is given who i didn't given who he is it's crispin glover (laughs) it's crispin glover which is pretty crazy that was the selling point of this is crispin glover acts the fuck out of well he doesn't go over the top and do his he doesn't Mm -hmm. do any of the crispin gloverisms he's actually very restrained and interesting i actually really think this was one of the standouts in terms of craft this is uh it was uh, keith thomas who did the vigil and so it's like it feels like you know the story itself you know it's an old lovecraft story so it feels a little dusty but some of the it's the one that i found maybe the most effective as a horror film because it actually was quite eerie and there's a couple flashes that are you know get under your skin it's it's got this weird curse about a witch in the town that i thought was really interesting Um, no this one it was um it just ran a smidge too long for me but i loved this concept and the acting in this one was amazing crispin glover just simmered the whole yeah and the guy's wife i don't know what it was about her the main guy's wife i looked her up straight away and i didn't do that with any of the other films where i was like who's this actor and she was just very interesting and when i looked her up it turns out she's like a director it's like she's i mean she's acting but she's also like a direct up-and-coming director so i was like oh that's interesting just it was one of those random people who just had a presence you know no, she did. She was captivating. She bubbled and she glowed yeah. on screen. Yeah. So yeah, I, I definitely noticed that as well. Um, so yeah, that one, um, I love the vigil. So yeah, I will watch whatever that guy does next. Yeah. And the next one um, is another uh, more famous, uh, you know, pretty famous uh, Lovecraft one. So this is Catherine Bigelow did Dream. Hard work, of the Witch hard work. Yeah. 
I'm sorry. Thank you. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. No, I yeah, wish, Catherine I wish Hardwick. we had a Catherine I Bigelow. I wish Catherine Bigelow. <laughs> um, no, Catherine Hardwick did dreams of a witch house. And I got to say, I have yet to see dreams of a witch house done. And I can't even say, well, I'll say successfully. Yeah. Um, this one didn't land for me. Th- this is the only one I actively such... didn't like. It's beautifully yeah. made. Like it is like she has all it the resources is. and it looks good as Rupert Grant. It's got she has yeah. style behind it. It feels like it should be amazing. I've just never seen this story successfully executed on screen. It, it feels the most generic. Like all of these feel a lot of them feel kind of wildly original. Like that's mm-hmm. what's that's the one thing I want to say right here is like compared to any series like this, this is probably the most original swings hour for hour I've ever seen put together, like outside of Masters of Horror saying it's very that's what's impressive about it. And this is the only one that felt more like somebody just doing a straight adaptation in their way that just it, it just didn't do much for me, that particular yeah. one. But that brings me to the one I'm excited to talk about. <laughs> Actually, the last two of them. Uh, uh, anything new by Panos Cosmatas, I am in, but even more. More exciting than Panos is the greatest actor to ever uh, grace screens, uh, Mr. Robocop himself, uh, who I haven't seen in much lately, Peter Weller. Uh, I just, I thought this was so intriguing. It's like, it's called The Viewing, and it's about this wealthy, reckless guy who's like basically sent invitations to all this random group of people, and they're all modern people you recognize, like Eric Andre and Charlene Yi, and they're just like these very modern actors. I think it's set in the early 80s or something. Mm-hmm. And they get the, and they all know who he is, but no one's ever met him. He's like this billionaire and they're all very curious and they go to his house and they're having this, like, it's very long conversations, really drawn out everything. I gotta like, say yeah, it yeah. lost me on the conversation. Cause it was like just this. And it yeah, was but it's cool his typical shot. mesmerizing. That's the thing about it him. Is, it was just really yeah. coolly shot. I was way too sleepy watching this. It did not. That was where it lost me the conversation. But then part it goes in the so. It'll bring me back crazy. at the end. Like because, then I was like, "What the fuck is happening? This is amazing." Yes, he's come. He's brought them all there because they're people he respects from different fields. Uh, and Sophia Batella is like his weird nurse slash junkie doctor, provider doctor. Hot chick. makes coke. And, yeah. and, you, and you'll recognize her because she's from the Mummy. She was the Mummy in the New Mummy, mm-hmm. and she was also in Climax by Gaspar Noé. And, and it's just got a vibe. But what? Like even me, I'm like in the middle, going, "Oh, this is." interesting that he's making this talky people hang out and man when it starts turning this is some face melting insane shit at the end yeah and it's because he wants to show them something and it ends up being something like some sort of egg and even if i go that far it's not really spoiling because there's no way to really spoil because this becomes about the style and it's so in line especially with beyond the black rainbow i feel like it's set in that same world actually as beyond the black rainbow and i just mm. thought like hell yeah like you know if i'm gonna watch one hour he just completely does his thing. It's a Panos Cosmatos film in one hour, and I totally love that. Uh, so can't I'm that's what that's the one I'm going to be watching again for sure. You know, uh, before the end of the year. So, um, and then the last one I is kind of the least horry, but emotionally I really was quite affected by it. Um, oh God, I watched this way too late at night, yeah. and it was one of those where I was just like. Oh God, that's so bleak. Yeah, I don't even have time for a palate cleanser now. I gotta yeah. go to bed no, thinking about this. It's a sad one on marriage and just loss. And this is Jennifer Kent, who knows obviously a lot about loss with the Babadook uh, being about that. But this is um, 
two great, just great performances. Like uh, S.E. Davis from The Babadook and Andrew Lincoln from The Walking Dead. They just get a chance to, even though it's mostly drama, it's got a changeling vibe for sure. It's definitely got a lot of images related. But she is a expert. Uh, or she's they're both ornithologists. They are going to this like recluse island where there's all these uh, a particular kind of bird for them to study. He does the sound. She does the or uh, he does the camera. She does the sound, and they're always looking. And she, then they start to get clues of something a ghost story that's happened on the other side in this in this house while also dealing with their uh the massive chasm that has uh, come between them in this last year since losing a child and that stuff i felt was just really well done like that stuff was Mm -hmm. really effective just as a if this wasn't even a horror film i would have been like wow that's great performances and a very sad it's a very sad piece um but also just you know really well executed makes me still excited about jennifer kent you know for the future like what she will make someday again Definitely. That one's called The Murmuring. Um, So yeah, this one for me, Super Bleak has some really cool visuals to it, but um, it's a slow burn in Super Bleak. Be in a mood to watch this and prepare yourself to need to watch something. Okay, your top two. Top two. Oh, definitely Autopsy and probably, hold on, I'm back to looking at my list. Pikmin's model? I'd say uh, Autopsy, Pikmin's model. Let's go with that. Okay, I'd probably go, I'll go The Viewing and probably... Pickman's model, but I will say, or autopsy, but I will say, I really, you know, I can't say it enough. I really think Anna Lily's film in that film there, that's a really interesting piece. You know what I mean? Uh, style wise, it's just, you know, if it was like, if it was 35 minutes, I think it would be like a perfect uh, longer short, but um, yeah, but really, really cool series. Fun that Guillermo comes out and does the Hitchcock thing before each one. And even though I didn't really understand how they all relate to that series, like, because they didn't really seem to be all about cabinet. I thought they were all going to be about objects from the first one, like haunted objects or things that, and they really, there's nothing to really connect them at a certain point as you're watching these. Mm-hmm. So that would be the only, it's not a big critique because it's like, who cares? But I didn't fully understand what the cabinet of curiosities was at a certain point. You know what I mean? Um, I didn't care. <laughs> I was having fun watching it. But yeah, look, I hope there's another season. So more upcoming uh, talent keeps getting put on display because again great to have this one hour model for someone like david Pryor before the, whatever the next movie is it's oh yeah super cool so anyway the, and yeah i really hope they keep this going as well um i i can't wait to see more of these and i think that it's actually performed well as well because it's something that i've heard all my students talking about and talking about all the different episodes and it's really great to see an anthology show that may actually be working because those are a really hard sell in Hollywood right now. It's always like you have to have a character. You have to have a through line. If you don't have a character compelling everybody for a full season, nobody's going to watch it. Well, I think it helps to have an uh, the uh, the recent Oscar winner be the through line, right? Like this, right? this director being like, hey, you should watch this. And then that's the only connection is Guillermo del Toro. I'd like to see him make one of these, you know? Yeah, me too. But me but too. it was cool. And, and I watched all of this around um Halloween, so it was kind of a fun thing to do. So anyway, so that's you know, Fantastic. that's that's a lot of a lot of That's a uh, lot. That's a lot. Well, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and we are gonna dive into some short films. Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Athletic Greens and their nutrition drink, AG1, a product that Elric and I have been taking every day. After months of being in quarantine, Elric and I both wanted to improve our health in the new year. So we decided to try Athletic Greens. It's a health supplement that actually tastes great and really boosts your energy. Plus, it's from New Zealand, which Elric loves. 
So what is AG1? Uh, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, all those things. I started taking mine daily right before my breakfast um, and before I started in with the coffee. So it became this thing that I was looking forward to as soon as I got up in the morning. It lets me know that I'm getting the nutrients I need. And after trying to choke down an assortment of homemade kale and quinoa smoothies I was making, I got to say the taste of this is great. It's got this wonderful lemon flavor. And it's lifestyle friendly, whether you are keto, vegan, dairy-free, paleo, or gluten-free. As you guys know, I have crazy food allergies, and it is free from all of the eight major allergens, which I was really impressed with. AG1, it's a small micro habit with big benefits, and it costs less than $3 a day, so way cheaper than the cold brew habit. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. I take it like 30 minutes before coffee, and it actually has given me a little boost of energy, which has been great. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash C-O-T-D. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash C-O-T-D to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Tonight's podcast is also brought to you by NordVPN. Are you missing out on your favorite show because it's not available in your region? Well, let me introduce you to NordVPN. If you're bored of US Netflix, why not take a spin in the UK? Using NordVPN and the click of a button, you can do just that. No need to travel to Japan for your favorite anime when NordVPN brings it right to you. With 5,000 plus server options, no show is out of your reach. Your privacy is a big deal to NordVPN. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so that you never have to worry about your IP or your location getting out. They've doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. Say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infective file, threat protection kicks in and deletes it before it makes a mess of your computer. There's literally no risk with their 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try, and if you like it, great. If you don't, they'll refund you, and you can pretend the entire situation never happened. Check out my link, nordvpn.com slash ofthedark. Again, that is nord, N-O-R-D, vpn.com slash ofthedark to get your subscription started today. And welcome back after a word from our sponsor. So we have a guest coming up in just a couple of minutes um, who wrote this immense tome that is just this epic research pace on every short horror film that was made before 1976. Um, So we're going to get there in a sec. But Elric and I wanted to kick off by talking about short films because it's a topic that we haven't really explored much on the show. We obviously mention them every so often, like, hey, did you see the short film or it's based on a short film? But we've never really dug into to kind of our favorite short films and also our history making them because we've both made a bunch of them as well how did you, when did you make your first short film uh, i think when i was 11 or so me and my friend we made our first and they were horror shorts they were mm-hmm. made in the camera 
edits. So we did yep. it all in camera. I think it was a VHS camera recorder. I can't remember what it was, but we made, I think, three or four, and they're all pretty short. And they're all, I, I saw them a few years back. I'd love to see them again because we're, it's fun to see us, you know. And he's somebody I actually ended up making uh, the indie features with in New Zealand. So it was kind of, that mm-hmm. weren't hard. They're very, you know, drama based. So uh, it, it is funny when you watch them back and go, oh, yeah, no, we're, I think the in camera thing was actually a good skill to learn back then because you, you weren't going to edit them. There was no post. It was just, whatever you could put image to image. I think it was kind of fun. I was the same. My parents bought me. I was in eighth grade. My parents got me a camcorder for my eighth grade Christmas presents. And then I shot and it was one of those like giant VHS ones. It hurt. It was like a shoulder rig, but it like weighed more than a television. Um, But you made it work. And because it was the VHS um, tape, I edited with two VCRs. And so I would, you recorded on one and then you would play on the other. And there was always a glitch. Um, So you would always have this little frame jump whenever there was an edit but that's how I started editing was with two VCRs and the day I learned to do that I remember thinking like oh my god the world is my oyster I can edit these things together from my house and um I remember moving the VCRs around constantly to do it but I probably made like three or four shorts while I was in high school and um yeah they're wild to look back at um and and see what we tried to do and that I was spoofing slashers that was the big thing is most of what I made during that time period it was spoofs we were making these really aware we thought they were funny spoofs on slashers so straight up horror comedy I only did one like that uh Bobo's Playhouse and I played Bobo and Escape Lunatic and it was all of that was complete Raimi ripoffs it was like we put the camera on some like piece of wood so could do like the movement i mean it was it was just and i don't think that one ever got it finished it was just like footage that never got edited because but it was ambitious you know that stuff was fun in college it was more when i first started college the shorts we made were like always about 20 minutes and they were all in the model of after hours it was like our (laughs) obsession was the one bad day movie and so they weren't Uh horror but they were bonkers uh i I think we made like three of them and i was always the main guy i was always the guy who all the stuff with bad stuff would happen to and that's and they were pretty ambitious again we're lucky because we grew up in a video age so it was cheap and easy yeah. to do versus shooting on film no even before i went back to grad school for film i was um it was while i was a public school teacher in dc i was hanging out with these other public school teachers over the weekend and we were all like 20 and um young and and just sat around and bitched about you know what it was like to try to get 10th graders through of mice and men but i started writing these horror scripts and i would make them perform in them and so i'd be like okay guys this weekend we're getting drunk and here's what we're shooting and it was one of those that i submitted to grad school um that got me into grad school so yeah and it was just a bunch of teachers playing around with a camcorder and it was wild that's funny um but yeah you know it was it was a lot of fun i look back on those and they're most of them are still teachers and they're very much like this can never get out, Becca, my teaching career. And I'm like, I get it. I get it. We're not putting them anywhere. But yeah, because it's fun. all just us drunk doing stupid stuff. Um, but yeah, there were some fun scripts that came out of that. And I was definitely trying different things with them. Um, but then how did it evolve? Like, when did you start running festivals with your shorts? Uh, well, I had a weird thing, two things that I, where I don't think I'm the same as you in this in this model. Like, uh, I went to film school, proper film school here for grad school. And what I found myself doing was trying to make less just more traditional, less fiction, traditional ones. And I went way more towards, I wouldn't call them experimental, but they're more like meshes of the afternoon style movie making. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason I went in that way is you could try things. And I think for me, a short film 
I, I, because at the same time, because digital was so cheap back in New Zealand, what we, we actually kind of skipped over making shorts at a certain point. We made like three or maybe even four. One didn't, we kind of aborted features. And beca- because it was as cheap, literally, we spent the same money making no budget features as what you would spend on a $5,000 short. So and because of that, we were doing that. But in film school, so I was using them more for to try things out, to try techniques, to try weird ideas, uh, kind of weird surrealist t- type stuff. And I'm really glad I did that. And I had a class once. I got to say, it's still the best thing I ever did. Because and this is part of the why we're doing the show is like advice if you're wanting to do this. It was a you had to make something every week class, and it was yep. it was called video art. But you know, and so it just any pretension or any like perfectionism, which is what a lot of people struggle with, had to go because you only had a week oh, yeah. to, to make another thing and then show it for about nine weeks in a row. And some of those films are my some of my favorite things I made at film school, even though there are these quick things. And it was just a way of challenging. And I call them more like sketches, probably, for a filmmaker, you know, a little bit closer to that. But that was a very useful thing. And I think I I know I suffer from this, but I think a lot of people who struggle to start that next thing, it's because they want mm-hmm. it to be perfect. And, oh, yeah. and if, you, if you eliminate perfection as even a possibility because <laughs> it's not going to be possible suddenly you can move on it and it's it's you know it tough advice easy advice to give tough advice to take sometimes uh but super important yeah in my summer class i have a film due every 10 days and the students look at it and they're so overwhelmed but the biggest thing is that you have to fail you're going to make at least one that turns nothing it turns out nothing like what you wanted it to do and in my experience that film that turns out nothing like what you wanted it to be you're going to learn like way more yeah. from that one than the one that's perfect and when you are making something every 10 days you have to kind of lose that um that safety that i know that i could do this i can film two people having a conversation i know how to do that um when you have to turn things out so quickly you constantly have to be reinventing what you do and it really takes so it makes you think past where you're comfortable um and i always say in my class like if something really scares you like if it scares you to make an experimental film or if it scares you to to think about how you're going to shoot a jump scare that's probably what you should do um yeah because that's the thing that's like your hiccup that you need to get through um Yeah, I started doing shorts. It was right after I'd been making heavy metal music videos for Fangoria. I'd worked with like Guar and Municipal Waste. We'd shot a bunch of stuff for like Lamb of God and a couple of other um, companies. We'd done EPK stuff for a bunch of the bands that went through OzFest that year. And um, so I had definitely kind of learned how to use all the equipment and, and kind of had learned to work with a really small crew. And so I started shooting shorts while I was working on my PhD. It was actually, and I used them as class projects because I didn't feel like writing 20 page papers, which is like the standard when you're doing grad school, it's always 20 page papers in every class. And in some of them I'd be like, can I make a film? Which is like what you do in high school. But um, that's what I did do in high school. That's how I got (laughs) it. I survived. Every English class in high school, write a paper on, you know, Lord of the Flies. Can I make a film? Yeah, sure. Um, And it's literally what I started doing during my PhD program um, was writing, making films, short films instead of writing papers. And um, some of those ended up being pretty decent and running festivals. So, yeah, it was all just and half of them I would never show to anybody. I have a good grouping of short films yeah, that that's why I you have to do them i mean that's anything. that's the yeah. hard part i mean another enemy so uh, you know procrastination and perfectionism are obviously the enemy mm-hmm. the other major enemy and i think another thing that 
helps with those short turnarounds is exposition, you know, and, and build and setup. like the short film, unlike the feature, if you have too long to write one, you're going to have, Oh, then a couple page and then he hang out with his wife and then he's watching TV. And then, and then he goes outside. It's like, no, no, your short film starts when he goes outside because when he goes you, outside, you have to, yep. if you've got five pages of buildup, cut it all out and start the movie. So basically in a Hollywood model, right. Of a feature, whatever that first half of that first act is just gone and you get to go a little bit into the second and that's the end of your movie. Right. Like, and it's trying to get your brain into a quick turnaround like that. When can I go in? What is that? What is it in as late as you can and out as early as you can? Yeah. Basically. I always use the example. I, my very first semester teaching at USC, I had my students make little five minute shorts in the very first semester. Um, and it's kind of like the semester leads up to it. They do like a minute, then they do three minutes and then their final one is five. And I had this student pitch me because I make them pitch me mm-hmm. the project. And it was like, I'm going to show this man who has this problem when he's 18 and he starts drinking. And then I'm going to follow him as he's yeah. still drinking at age 20 and loses his job. And then he's 30 and he's still drinking and he, he gets a wife, but she doesn't understand him and he doesn't understand her. And then he's drinking and she eventually leaves him and loses his kids. And I'm like, you got five minutes. So take that whole thing and show me the most interesting five minutes Part in that 40 yeah. year lifespan that you just span yeah. like five consecutive minutes and go from yeah, there. That's why, and that's why a lot of um, one scene shorts, like show us a scene can be so effective. Like give us one moment, give us, that's why it's a great lesson is like build it around a jump scare, build it around one scene. Don't try to build mm-hmm. an entire film in the way that we think of film, because we think of films based on the feature model and the three act structure and you do not get three acts you might get three movements that that mm-hmm. appear like an act but they're not an they're not actually an act and so um i think i think picking like yeah do a jump scare or do a thing is is the best way to get started give yourself like something very um simple like that uh i always think drew daywalt shorts are a fantastic right. example or even um oh gosh his name just left well, me. well okay so it's the bit i've read i've read this one i know what you're talking about i think it yeah. might be the most perfect example of what a short is because the other thing about shorts is our attention spans have gotten shorter and shorter with the internet Always. so like even though i've got a couple on my list that i love that are 15 or 20 minutes i think if you can make something under five or under eight even better and lights out has to be like one of the most by david yeah. sandberg it, it, that's yeah. it david sandberg, david sandberg in the you. model of drew daywell but what it proves and david sandberg has now directed two shazam movies and an annabelle movie but it all starts with a three minute short that got his yeah. attention three minutes made with him, just his wife and he, him doing all the technical and her acting in a, in an apartment and and whoever plays the creepy thing as it gets closer and closer if you haven't seen it go watch it three minutes it is so effective like i could watch it right now and it's still scary all these years later and you're like and you're like that that is something i think that's a really hard thing i don't know if i can do it i i I want to actually challenge myself at some point could i even do something that short and effective because it is so interesting and and of course it's a long shot to get become a hollywood thing but it did and it's happened before so that's a perfect example of the short short it is And what I love that that one does that I have seen a lot of others kind of model it after is that it is basically built around a jump scare. It is built around leading up to that final moment. And it only really needs to exist in that. And that it is a one, two, three punch. You have the first moment that something's wrong. Then 
hey, that does seem to be kind of off. No, this is really fucking off jump scare and you're out. And it's a really good formula to follow when you're looking at something like Lights Out and how to craft out a scare, a particular scare. And again, it becomes then he makes the feature film version of Lights Out and really he recreates that short film as the opening. And so now Mm -hmm. it's got he's got eight minutes instead of three to open a movie and and it's good practice. So that that's a great example. There's some like I know one we both like from recent years uh, that is still impossible to see on there, which is really disappointing. Uh, which that's great choice and this is like more on the bonkers so that's in my top five yeah no I mean I think it's a I think this is a terrific short but no one can see it you know and so I would assume because of copyright reasons I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say because it is so um, ingrained in Red Lobster and I'll talk more about this short in a sec that I I gather there may be some copyright questions going on but that's just me guessing robin i would love to hear why we can't find this well the other idea i had is maybe they're trying to turn it into a longer format thing so they're you know not wanting the short because that happens there's some these great shorts that will come out for all of a couple days somebody sees them pulls them and then develops them as features yeah but again Mm -hmm. that's not what we're talking about here we're talking like well let's just go through because other lessons will or ideas that we, you know, suggestions for doing shorts will come from just your favorites or ones that... Yeah, so we each listed five shorts that we loved. Yeah, I went for a couple that had big influence on me when I was younger and then a couple mm-hmm. and a couple recent ones that I just liked. And and Lights Out is like a good example of that. But um, I'll just start with one because I hadn't seen... I've done two New Zealand ones, three New Zealand films, but two that were an influence at the time. One is my favorite short of all time, but I'll, I'll leave that to the end. But I had to look, it took a bit of searching yesterday to find one called UE de la Vie, which is like a French, it's meant to be like Mavi and Rose or something. And mm-hmm. it, this this I saw uh, 94, so I must have seen in 95 or something. There was a VHS tape that came out of some of the best New Zealand shorts. New Zealand shorts uh, are usually at a very high world-class award-winning level because they tend to have $90,000 budgets uh, by the government. So it's kind of crazy how... Jesus Christ! Yeah, it's kind of crazy how big the shorts were when I was growing up. They were a big part of the film culture being made in New Zealand better than most of the features. And this first one, there's two that stuck out. Um, and one is like probably the biggest influence on me outside of like David Lynch and then this one. This one is a uh, some very uh, hoity-toity people have gone out for a very fancy dinner and they're wearing suits and they brought this woman with them who's not usually used to going to such a fancy French restaurant. There's a singer, there's all these people and you're just like, okay, what is this? And then the waiter comes and goes, choose one. And there's five people. There's two kids and kind of a buff man and a woman. And she picks this attractive man and, and he's very thankful to her. And you don't really know what they're going to do. Of course your brain goes, Oh, is this a cannibal thing or something? And then suddenly uh, they are, he's put in a tank like a water tank and slowly while all these rich people eat the tank just slowly fills the water and you're just gonna watch them die and that's just the world of film and i remember being very shocked and so this girl is suddenly trying to deal it's normal to, so almost as like society the movie uh-huh. but it's it's weird the tone watching it again last night for the first time in like a decade you know it, it's on you can find it online if you search uh, it's not quite as good as it was in my head, but that image was still very effective. And she obviously tries to stop it, but it's very, it's, you know, he's totally nude too. Like you see everything, he's in this water, he's dying. It looks like he's actually dying and everyone's going on like it's normal. And again, it's, this is, it, it illuminates a good thing about a short is just that one good idea is enough for a short film. Like that's a good image and it's enough to build a set. So it's satirical. 
Uh, and I found it to be quite, dis- it just disturbed me when I was younger because it stayed with me all these years, uh, about 13 minutes. I kind of tried to write down how long most were. I feel like just to kind of gauge, you know, how much they're trying to fit in. Um, yeah. But this was an interesting one. I- again, it- it's Simon Barry, directed by Simon Barry, who went on to direct features in New Zealand. So not horror features, but um, this one's definitely horror. Okay, so I'm going to jump in um, with the uh, one of the older ones that I have on this list, which isn't even that old. And this one is called Slow Mo, hmm. and it's from 2001. And this was probably, I was in college at this time, and I remember seeing it on HBO. This is when HBO used to show short films, like if a movie ended at like, 1046 and another movie wasn't supposed to start till 11 p.m. They would find like a 14 minute short to play in between because they needed the content to fill that space. And so they were showing short films. And this one, it's about um, and it's just such a cool filming style. It is about New York City, but it focuses on a piece, a group of people who are what do they call it? Like motion challenged or speed challenged. It's a group of people who literally can only move in slow motion while the rest (laughs) of the city is moving super fast around them and um, that they can't interact with the other people because they're moving too fast. And so they can only interact with other slow mos. (laughs) And it was just such a cool short in how it was presented how it was shot. They're a support group, um, but they can only interact with each other because they move so much slower than the rest of the city. And it was just such a cool concept. I can't call it horror. It does have like a creepy bend to it towards the end. It definitely, I'll say, is kind of sci-fi-y. But yeah, this one, I remember seeing this on HBO and it just like blowing my ever-loving brain. Hmm. Uh, That does sound cool. And that's the other thing. Sometimes it's just a chance to do a stylistic experiment or yeah. something uh alter obviously has become you know the home of most most of the great contemporary shorts right now out mm-hmm. there uh, i caught one when i teach a class where i'm always looking for good examples of films to show i caught one that i hadn't seen last year from 2018 called other side of the box and this one's 15 minutes it's really caleb j phillips directed it. it's really eerie it is cut from the same mold as uh, it follows and smile in terms of the passing on of something. So it's a couple are preparing a meal. The door knocks this like old friend that they weren't expecting at all to see is there. And he's got a box for them. And he comes in and goes, I need to give this to you. And they're like, what? And he's like, you need to have this. Like, it looks like a present. And they're like, okay. And then he's like, but you can't take your eyes off it. If you leave your eyes off it, something terrible will happen. And they're very confused, but it's basically this, like a curse you have to pass on. So of course you start l- walking away. And when you turn around, it's the top of a, this like bald guy's head with his eyes just peering over the box inside the box inside a little box on your table and he's looking at you wow. and you don't know why he's looking at you but if you take your eyes off him something worse will happen and they realize as this goes on it gets real creepy in the middle of so you realize they need to give away the box now otherwise otherwise they're it's like that and it, you know it was really effective i hadn't heard about it it was just when i was scrolling and uh yeah i recommend people check this one out for a modern one it's 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 really actually quite creepy other side of the box. Wow. On I'm writing this one too. Yeah, I think you would enjoy it. It's a good 12 or 15 minute thing. Oh my gosh. Okay. So that is other side of the box. Okay. I'm writing it down. Sorry. I'm taking <laughs> some time. I'm the middle of the show. I'm so excited yeah. about that one and how weird it sounds. Yeah. So I will say what excites me about that is that it sounds so surreal. Yeah. Like you couldn't make an entire feature out of it, but it sounds so surreal that you can do a short out of it and blow people. But mind. it's got the structure of the, those like the curse, the, the tape or the ring mm-hmm. where if you pass on, so hard to do that in 15 minutes, but they, they did it well. So. 
So I will take it to um, the surrealistic one that really affected me. And this is about 10 years ago. They were running this grouping of little short films on Adult Swim, um, Cartoon Mm. Network's Adult Swim. And they were all super surreal and super absurdist. This would be about 2012, 2013, thereabouts. And the one that I remember, there was too many cooks. And the one that I absolutely Uh. loved was called Unedited Footage of a Bear. Mm. And I loved how they just existed to exist. They were surreal. They were absurdist. They were funny. They were equally horrifying. Like unedited footage of a bear has some downright terrifying moments in it. Um, And these changed my world because it was right around this same time period that I was really getting into the Mighty Boosh, Hmm. which was also running on Adult Swim. Super surrealistic, super weird, super um, surrealism, almost Dada in some capacities. And so I just became obsessed with this art form. Hmm. And it has continued. Like if you watch Glorious, it's absurdist, surrealist the entire way through. And so um, seeing these ones that were being put on Cartoon Network during this time period, specifically on edited footage of the bear, was basically like my permission. It was somebody is doing this kind of Maya Darren esque style that I had always found so captivating, but here's how you do it in modern light. And I now follow a bunch of um, TikTok people. I have to give you some names Mm. that make absurdist Dada-esque films, but they're all like 30 seconds long. Um, That is interesting. Yeah, I haven't seen anything like I'm not on um, that yet. If Twitter falls, maybe I'll go check it out. But because I just know it's going to distract me so much. But but it, it, it is like if it was movies, I would be interested. Like if they're 30 second like art i'd be totally curious no there is um it is very much these 30 second surrealistic art movements and i'm looking up there's one girl that i follow who does these i cannot look it up Mm. right now i'll have to i'll get the name i'll post it up on twitter but yeah there's there's some amazing stuff that i've been seeing on there and it is so um inspiring to see people doing this art style i love it so much so yeah unedited footage of a bear was definitely one of the ones that gave me kind of permission to move forward with that Yeah, i've heard of that one but i haven't seen i don't think um the next one i've mentioned a bunch on here but i definitely have to put on there it's still my favorite of the last few years and it it feels good that this person's now being recognized with features and that is slut uh director oh yeah Kuna. this is a, this breaks all those rules because this is 21 minutes and it's definitely it definitely has the a feature length type vibe about it it feels like you've watched mm-hmm. a feature in 21 minutes set in texas it's basically a texas big bad wolf kind of story it's a uh young naive kind of nerdy girl at a roller rink in the in the 80s in texas and you know this other girl who's kind of a bit of a bitch to her and then this weird guy who watches and then asks her out and she looks after her grandma and it has such a great freaking like build up and the ending is it's just like perfectly orchestrated so if you're just looking to see like good and this was an afi graduate graduating afi film um but it still just so people to realize like you know you get lights out where the next year you're directing a feature you know i watched slut and i remember walking out of ethereum or whatever and thinking like oh this person's gonna do a feature straight away and then it's like seven years before i heard her name again so it wasn't a straight even though she's moved on to bigger thing the watcher watcher this year um it's not as quick as all that for some people and so uh but this one definitely shows what you can do in 20 minutes which to me is you know it's not the quick share short film which is a different type of share and it's not as good for online but 
Mm-hmm. It is really great storytelling. And, and we talk about calling cards being the other major reason to make a short because, of course, it gives you a chance to show something. This is, you know, as good as I've seen of that. Definitely. No, Slut is absolutely amazing. It is so good. I think that's on um, Alter now is, or somewhere. It's definitely online. Yeah, it's. I've showed it in yeah, classes. It's yeah. definitely online. And um, I love this one so much because it builds out the world so much. Like it paints the world. It paints the grandma. It paints the scenery. Yeah. You can tell that she was really trying to do some big stuff yeah. with this. And I'm admittedly surprised this didn't get a feature. Maybe there was one in the works yeah, at maybe some still point. Could be, yeah. But it felt like the serial killer and this protagonist as the final girl, it felt like this was such a compelling story. Like I would have watched a full length version of this. Yeah, no, for sure. So on that kind of compelling, um, this deserved an entire feature. I'm going to go to um, Rosanna Leanne. Uh, I'm probably saying her last name wrong, Liang. Um, and her short film, Do No Harm, oh, the, well, which I, I saw. Yeah, I told you about that one, remember? Yeah, I saw, we actually saw this together, I thought, at Etheria, didn't we? No, I never saw this one at Etheria. I saw this a couple of okay. years ago when I saw Shadow of a Cloud. And this is on my, this is my next one on my list too. I, I think this is the best directed short film. Oh, I'm so glad ever. you have this on your list. <laughs> so I show this yeah. in most of my classes yeah, as like made. an amazing adventure of a short yeah. film. Um, So yeah, this do no harm, the setup, it's, it's a combination of New Zealand and Chinese yeah. Um, because the director is, I believe her family is Chinese, but she grew up in New Zealand. Yeah. And um, so it's got both kind of infused together very seamlessly. And it is about a doctor who is operating on this person and you don't really know why she's operating on him. You realize that he's got some type of heart problem that he has to have this surgery and all the other surgeons in the room are making commentary about what a horrible person he is. And then out of nowhere, these gangsters burst in and they're like, we're here to make sure that that guy on your table dies. Cause he's a really bad dude. And she says, he's my patient. I cannot let him die and goes through these crazy measures to fight off the game. It's like watching and, the best Hong Kong action film. Oh my God. It's so good. It's just, and it's 11 minutes. I wrote that down because I needed to be like, remind myself, you know, and I watched shadow of a cloud and she, that's equally well directed. It's not as good a movie because mm-hmm. some of it's a little silly, but the direction's really good, but it's, but the short is just, yeah. If you, if you listen to nothing else from the show, if you want to see just like, it's not less horror, but more extreme, it's an extreme you know, situation short, but the direction is, yeah. She also made a, a really terrific short that I think is one of the best shorts I've ever seen about the issue of like representation and race. And it's like, uh, I've got, I can give you a copy. It's basically three Asian like actresses in Auckland, New Zealand. It's split screen for the whole movie. So each one gets a screen. So there's three screens and they are all different body types. They're all from different parts. Like one, one person I think is Vietnamese. One person's from China. One, so South Korea, totally different, but they're all treated like Asian whores by the casting directors. So they're going through these things and they're like the people who are being racist to them aren't even aren't even and it's subtle racism it's the bullshit racism of like can you be more like a schoolgirl? here's a lollipop it's mm-hmm. they're all going for commercials but they're all going for the same roles and they're all being treated uniformly even though they're totally different ethnicities and it's fucking brilliant it's it's i think it's called take three or something and it's Ooh. and it's about 15 minutes but it's one of the and it's also a great casting for actors it's a great film to see about like the acting process so it's not the same kind of movie as this but it's almost equally well made just a very so she's definitely a talent to watch um 
I don't know what her next thing is, but um, and I, she's not someone I. Knew, I but... will watch it. No, yeah. like I watch Shadow in the Clouds because of her. Yeah. Um, and I will continue to watch whatever she does. Yes. It's, she's just outstanding. So, so if you no guys harm. have not seen Do No Harm, you can definitely find that one on YouTube. Total standout. Um, and I know we, I know we, you, one of the next ones you're going to mention is uh, a, a standout of recent years that we'll get to. The last, the la- my last one is my favorite short. It, it had a bigger influence on me than even a Razorhead did when I saw it, and it's, um, it's starting to get known a little bit more here. Um, but I saw this one. I must have been like, it's one of the reasons I make films. I think is seeing this short. It's called Kitchen Sink by Allison McLean, and she did Jesus' Son. Uh, the mm-hmm. feature, and she did a film called Crush. So she's made American movies since then. She's um, it's 14 minutes, and it's basically black and white. It looks like a Razorhead. That's why I made the comparison. It's between that and Tetsuo aesthetically, but it's a definitely a feminist Lynchian kind of movie. It's like a woman who's kind of lonely, and she finds this giant, big, thick hair in the sink, and she pulls the hair and pulls the hair, and just this hairball thing comes out. She then oh wow, she then shaves the hair, and she puts it in a bathtub. It's all black and white, but like that silver look, like the whole movie looks like almost like nitrate, um, just the way it was photographed. And she shaves it, and it's just a man. It's this man who looks very plain. He doesn't have any animation. He doesn't make any facial things. And she's got shaved it down to this man. And then she starts using the man. Like she dances with him and kind of eases her loneliness. And at one point, and she has a straight razor after that she shaved him with. And it's very sexual. It's very aesthetic. It's all about like the little feelings. It's not about dialogue or anything like that. It reminds me of a razor head in that way, but it's almost like the opposite of a razor head because of who's making it. And she just infuses mm-hmm. it with, this uh these qualities and these weird uh kind of um almost like urges but or or fantasies that aren't then acted on and it has a pretty fucked up ending i won't ruin it it is i showed it to i you know how sometimes you'll have a favorite film that you don't share much because you love it so much you almost want to keep it private that's what this has always been for me and and i showed it to students recently and they looked at me like whoa you are fucked up like i don't even think it's that fucked up but they all were really like kind of disturbed by the tone because it's so tonally well-made. And I was surprised actually, it was the first time I'd ever shown it to people. And, um, but it's a, it's, it's one that has, you know, it really, she has never matched this. Jesus son's a really cool film. Um, mm-hmm. It's a really neat film, but she, because it's, this is the so aesthetic, this is more like that perfect Tetsu where every shot matters uh, quality. And it just really made me want to make shorts. And my early stuff was more in this vein. And I, I want to make another movie in this vein where every shot's, kind of perfect and a little more surreal the world at some point um my, my new thing is the opposite of that in some ways I'm much more realist but um yeah but but yeah this is a terrific film and now it's actually there's a not a great quality version on youtube from a german rip but um if you can ever get a nice i've got it on a nice dvd it's it's a terrific terrific short um so i have two left um the one that we had talked about before yeah. great choices definitely on here this is by um robin commissar and this one it is you think you are watching a red lobsters commercial from the 90s and then it rewinds and you're watching it again and then it rewinds and you watch it again and every single time the actor does something different slightly different and after a while she realizes that she is stuck in a red lobster commercial and is trying to figure out what she can do to get out as somebody keeps rewinding it over and over and it keeps replaying itself this one is real surrealistic it's real absurd is humor again it's exactly what i love in the world um yeah not available online but definitely something to look out for i see a lot of when i've tried to find it before to show in classes 
I always see Google searches of when is this coming to the internet or where can I watch this? And it's just not available. So I hope it's as you think, Elric, that it's not like a Red Lobster um, copyright thing, that it is more of a... um, yeah, that they're they've got something. What, well, if it. if it was if it was a copyright, I feel like somebody could have leaked it, and you know what I mean, and leaked it somewhere, and it'd be hard for it. To, I don't know, but I will say, yeah, I was uh, I discovered this one because I was a judge at the Knoxville Horror Film Festival that year, and this was the film I awarded, and it was one of the more knockout shorts I've ever seen, and also the actress mm-hmm. in it is Carrie Coon who's the star of The Leftovers, the show, and Gone Girl. She's Ben Affleck's sister in Gone Girl. She she's a major like to me one of the best working actors so the fact that they have her i think he was a from what i understood i think he was like a like a pa or something on a feature she was on Mm -hmm. and asked her to do this in her time off but it's it's really just freaking terrific and so strange i'm dying just to see it again like it's one of those movies that really stuck in my head but i never got to see it again because i don't have a copy so no i robin i believe it's a he yeah robin is a yeah i looked it up yeah yeah okay yeah um just making sure yeah. yeah um so continuing on with my last one this is a long one i wanted to include one that was not like a, yeah. a six minute short one that was much much longer and so this is one that i had seen a long time ago not a long time like six years ago um but i was really impressed with and this is Neil Blumkamp. Oh, yeah. yeah, Neil yeah. Blumkamp, who we know from like District 9, made this short film probably in like 2016, hmm. 17, um, called Firebase. And it is set in Vietnam. And it is huge. This is fucking huge. Like this thing had to have cost a million dollars for this like 20 minutes. And it is about a group of soldiers in Vietnam who are sent to investigate. They think that there's something going on at this riverbank, that it could be the enemy. And so this platoon of soldiers that are sent to this riverbank to investigate. And when they get there, something I'll just say otherworldly is actually happening. And the whole thing is set up as this soldier who is, you know, kind of been through this. He's the only one to survive is being interviewed and is trying to tell all of the other corporals what he saw there that day. And it is brutal. It is huge camera effects. It is massive, massive special effects. It is hmm. crazy huge. And this one I watch and um, I, I was always questioning, like I assumed this had been made as a um, kind of like a teaser, as like a shopping uh, view for a feature. And so I actually looked it up today and that's exactly what it was. This was made with the intention of this is what the feature is going to look like. And so he made like a 20 minute short film based on this. And there was supposed to be a feature and it has since been canceled, which is heartbreaking because I always really liked this, but it's on YouTube. Now you can watch it. Um, And this is Firebase from Neil Blumkamp um, 2017. It's like an episode of some massive TV show with a lot of money making some type of crazy horror supernatural war story. Yeah. And it just goes to show like between all these movies, there are so many different ways. There is no right way, but like, there's the quick three minutes you're in and out jump scare there's the make a part of a feature as a pitch for to make your feature there is like fit a whole feature into 20 minutes which rarely works but in this case does yeah there's so many different models you have to be true to mm-hmm. the idea and you have to make sure it's the thing you want to, to make that's the, other, the number one thing is make sure it's the kind of film you want to make if you did make features otherwise you are kind of wasting your time um i think so uh lots of them i think we should uh put 
this list together, maybe Pepper and a few more and put it on our um, you know, Patreon as one of our lists because that way people Yeah, actually I've got that slated. I've yeah. got twenty best short films, um, horror shorts okay. is gonna so be we'll one add of our to, we'll add to these. Sheet. We'll put these in and then we'll add to them. And I did um find one of the I couldn't find all of them. There's there's definitely a female that I follow on TikTok that I absolutely love the surrealist stuff that she's making. But I did look up one of the neo surrealists that I follow is Frankie is fun. His stuff is just it's it's a breath of fresh air in the okay. surrealistic world. Um, so yeah, it's trip. Okay, so with that. We are bringing on um, one of my favorite academics who I've I've definitely kind of worked with his publishing um, group before, and I just find his work to be fascinating. So let's bring on Gary Rhodes. I am excited to welcome to the show tonight our guest, Gary Rhodes, author of the brand new book. Well, kind of brand new. It's been out for a bit, but it took us a while to get him on the show. The Palgrave Encyclopedia of American Horror Film Shorts from 1915 to 1976. This thing is a tome that details over 1,500 horror shorts that were released theatrically during this time period. Yeah, they used to play horror shorts before movies when you would go to the theater. Gary, how on earth did you find all these? Well, let me start by just saying thanks so much for being here. It's it's a great thrill. I, I was buying Fangoria magazine from when I was a little kid. My first issue was actually number eight. Right before that's it got, a zombie, right? That's or, a zombie. That's mm-hmm. Fulci. I grabbed it right before it was pulled off the uh, <laughs> newsstands and snuck it into the house, and still have that copy. So, so thank you so much for having me. Oh, and, and I, I will say up top, this isn't your first rodeo into horror with a book. Like you've got so many horror, amazing academic books behind you. So, yeah. Well, thank you very much. That's what happens when you turn 50 and, and have gray hair. Is there's a there's a stack of horror film books behind you. And uh, <laughs> I, I think seven on Bela Lugosi alone. We've been at this for a little bit, for better or worse. But but thank you very much. And I, I love short subjects. And we, we, we think, I think we've been trained to think, those of us uh, alive today, about feature films films of course and and what the definition of that is obviously varies different film festivals even will have different you know 40 minutes plus 60 minutes plus you know different definitions of what's a feature film but there was this great period in in American film history uh, it happened I think right before us talking here mm-hmm. it happened right before me basically uh uh but it was something my parents grandparents great-grandparents would have experienced all of ours and that's that, you know, you didn't just go to see a feature film. Now we we choose which film we want to see. We pay our $15, whatever it is. Once upon a time, obviously, we went to see a slate of different films. Maybe there was a feature, maybe there was a double feature, but there were also a number of shorts. And sometimes those were of the horror variety, wonderfully. Yeah, I so, imagine accessibility. Oh. oh, sorry. Well, accessibility... Like this period is so interesting to me because I would say it's an entire black spot in my brain outside of some of the cartoons or things I might have seen at rep theaters. But like even growing up, I think in New Zealand, I think we had maybe just the tail end of some shorts before features for a little while, just like intermission and things like that. (laughs) But like I think me and Becca are very familiar with like post 90s, 2000 shorts because there was places for them to exist with the Internet 
So you, this whole mm-hmm. period that we're that you're pointing out is this like entire block, which where I wouldn't even outside of countries that have film archives, I wouldn't even know where to start. You know, uh-uh. where to even dive yeah. in. So I'm fascinated just here to hear that part of the process of how you how you decided on that period and how you researched it. Well, thanks for that. I think uh, you know it's something. I mean, I've I've written not only a lot about horror but about other types of film dating back to the very earliest, you know. And so if we think about, say, the period from roughly 1893, 1894, I mean, I'm talking Birth of cinema, yeah. pre- prehistorical yeah. cinema uh, up until roughly 1915 or mm-hmm. so, you know, most of the films that first couple of decades would be have been what we now call shorts, mm-hmm. you know, uh, as opposed to features. Once the likes of everything from the great Italian epics like uh, Pastrone's Ca- uh, Cabaria or, 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 or the Italian Dante's Inferno through D.W. Griffith, you know, all that. We, we, we get longer, <laughs> you know, our mm-hmm. attention spans grow longer. And so shorts really dominated the first 20 years or so of film. And then they took a back seat. They, I think for better or worse thereafter forever took a back seat, but they didn't disappear from the cinemas. I mean, you would go in and you would see your feature or double feature, as I've said, but and you would see a, a trailer or more than one trailer. We 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 identify with this today, of course. At times, you might have even seen something akin to what we would think of as a a commercial, you know, mm-hmm. a Coca Cola or whatever. But then there was the other stuff. Uh, there was the newsreel, which occasionally covered horror type events like Halloween or say Orson Welles wore the world's broadcast from 38, you'd see a newsreel. I mean, this was before TV news, you know, you'd see a newsreel. You'd also see uh, a number of other short subjects. Maybe they were music. Maybe they were uh, uh, comedy. Maybe they were animated, but it built up what was called the film program. Theaters at the time even loved what they called a quote, balanced program. And that really came out of even earlier experiences like vaudeville, you know, where you'd go see some live sketches, live acts. One would maybe be drama. One would be comedy. Maybe one's a dog act or acrobatics, et cetera. You'd see a mix. And the idea was, you know, not one thing dominated your whole night's entertainment. So the idea of the horror short was, well, maybe you were going to see a dramatic film or a comedy film, but you'd also see a horror short you know, kind of mixed in as part of the bigger nights, the bigger evenings entertainment. So some of the observations that I made looking through this immense book detailing all of these horror shorts is first, these are all made by major studios like 20th Century Fox and MGM were making their own shorts all the way through the 1970s. Like how was this structured within the studio system? Well, that's a wonderful question because, you know, at a given point in the 1910s, and I I think we really start to see it by 1918, 19, you know, the short becomes a short. And Mm -hmm. if the shorts had dominated once upon a time, they become known as a, quote, short just because of the newfound dominance of the feature, like by comparison, Hey, you're short, you know, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and maybe you're lesser, but you're not unimportant. And so the studios, you're right, the big studios for decades have departments devoted to creating short films. And this continues 
Uh, it starts, we see it really dying out by the early 60s, and it kind of limps along until really the last shorts uh, of, of the 1970s, the 1976-ish or so, at least as regards some of the horror ones. But the big studios, I mean, this was everybody. It was the MGMs, the Warner Brothers, the Fox, the names we still know. Mm-hmm. They were making they were making shorts and they were making shorts of various types, but a lot of them were horror or very commonly, and I suspect that a few of the ones we do know, most of us, would be what we might call horror comedies. You know, Bugs Bunny meets a mad scientist, the Three Stooges uh, in an old dark house at night with spooky occurrences. But horror slash horror, you know, horror comedy that that they were around for uh, sixty plus years. Wow. And the other thing that I noticed was that it was um, it looked like it was the same directors, like you would see a name and then you would see them like seven more times within that decade. So were there directors that they specifically targeted to do these short films? Oh, yes. Directors and stars, not only the uh, the comedians and the animated characters we all probably still know and love. I saw a lot of Woody Woodpecker in there. Oh, Woody. Woody was there, you know, pecking at monsters when he wasn't after the tree bark. Uh, We we you know, but but there were a lot of these kind of forgotten cartoon characters, forgotten uh, uh, comedy teams comedians you know edgar kennedy would be one name that comes to my mind a few of us may have seen him or recognize him in shorts that other people made like laurel and hardy but he would have his own series of shorts too and often that was him up against the spooks in the dead of night directors writers a lot of the same people were around you know making these films yes some of them transitioning from silent to sound Mm -hmm. and some of them with you know 30 plus year careers so a lot of the same people made these films even some of the ones that made what were considered to be non-fiction films about horror which is its own little interesting i think area i saw a great one a few years ago um something i i wasn't aware of was was the unicef trick-or-treating um like it was like a document but it was like a short horror film of all these kids dressed up and it was black and white and it was it was very evocative for what it was but again it no one would ever have a record of where that existed until Mm -hmm. unless a book like this you know registered it well yeah thanks this was one of the reasons to become interested in these films because they're there for decades There's so many of them. And we're talking ghosts, goblins, Halloween. We're talking witches, demons, devils. We're talking, well, one of my favorite finds uh, through all of this was uh, the very first zombie film. Wow. The very first zombie film. Oh, yes, we all love zombies. (laughs) And they they occupy a lot of our mind and headspace. I actually, once upon a time, 20 years ago, wrote a book about the film White Zombie, mm. which is a 1932 feature. You know, we know it. Maybe we love it. Maybe we don't. But we know it's there. <laughs> and, and it's usually considered to be the first, quote, zombie film. In actual fact, one of the directors who made a bunch of these kind of, quote, nonfiction, kind of pseudoscience films, short films, made the very first zombie film in 1931, even before White Zombie. 
So they're there at the forefront of a lot of these kinds of characters, uh, horror characters we know and love. They're there from the start. What uh, kind of zombie portrayal was it? Was it um, like a slave kind of portrayal, like like White Zombie in the you know, I, the movies that were kind of taking place in that early, you know, to mid thirties? Or yes, it was a it was a fellow named Walter Futter. Hmm. He made travelogue films about other countries. They were uh, very, uh, regrettably, they were they were often quite racist and trying to be comedic. Look at the funny people of mm-hmm. another country. Uh, but but a few of his were about voodoo in Haiti. Wow, so Haitian ones, yeah. And one of them was specifically about uh, zombies working at places like sugar mills. Uh, that type of zombie that we see from films like White Zombie through, mm-hmm. say, Serpent and the Rainbow, you know, and beyond. Uh, so, yes, it was of that type. Some of Futter's other films were things like uh, voodoo ceremonies with children being sacrificed, stuff like that. Mm. Uh, and, you you know, usually promising more than they showed the audience Usually, uh, a lot of these, of course, were the ethnographic films were rather racist, regrettably, but they did establish certain horror tropes, and they were among this vast body of of short films that were there for decade after decade. Now, I have one of my favorite things that I discovered looking at this book is that there was a 1921 film called Friday the 13th, all about superstitions. Mm. But I was curious if as you were looking at this, did you see short films run in trends? Did you see did short films follow with the same trends of like, okay, it's the 50s. Now we're full into sci fi and aliens and then 60s gets more kind of postmodern. Did short films follow the trends that we would have seen in feature horrors at that time period or did they kind of beat their own drum in that capacity? Well, well, that's a great question. And they generally speaking, they followed the trends or were at times even one step ahead of them. Mm. Like the zombie example I just mentioned. Uh, because they were shorts, they were lower budget by their very nature, even if they were made by big studios, uh, you know, they could take a bit more risks. So, yes, at times, like the 1920s, uh, and 30s, one of the most common horror-type shorts was of the, quote, old dark house mm-hmm. subgenre. You know, uh, stormy night, uh, bridge is washed out. Maybe there's even an old a will being read of, uh, of somebody who's recently died. Uh, you know, spooky goings-on. Uh, so they did follow the trends, but at times, like with the zombie film, they did kind of even push them forward because they had a bit of... Uh, it seems that they had a bit of extra latitude because they weren't the feature. They didn't cost as much. And so I I think we can see, uh, well, one of my other favorite things to think about is there's this period, and maybe this gets a little inside baseball, but there's this period a lot of us horror film buffs know about called the British ban on horror films, where from ni- roughly 1936 to 1939, there were almost no horror films made. So the story goes, because Britain had imposed a ban on them, another big English-speaking country, and so Hollywood basically stops making them. Well, in, in some ways, this is true. But to the point of your question, uh, horror film shorts continued in that period, even though they disappeared from the feature-length uh, category. So there were no big-budget horror films in, say, 1937 with uh, stars of the period like Karloff and Lugosi. But we kept getting some of these kind of cartoon animated spooky films 
the shorts, I mean, hmm. as well as some uh, some other live action shorts. So they they echoed the trends, but at times they were a wee bit ahead of them too. Amazing. Okay, so what are some of the stands out? I mean, you there's literally like over 1500 films in this book. Are there like three or four that you were like, holy shit, those were amazing. I need to tell other people about them or ones that were like genuinely scary for the time period? Well, yeah, I think there were some some great ones. And look, some of them we we do know. I mean, even some of the later ones. Uh, as I say, the title Transylvania six five thousand. Some people will think of the live action film from the eighties. I out. do, I do too. I was a little <laughs> kid then. Uh, some of us will think also, though, of the of the nineteen sixty three uh, Bugs Bunny cartoon, where he's trying to find a telephone and he ends up checking into a hotel run by a you know by a top hatted vampire. <laughs> some of the best ones, some of the ones I love the most are the ones probably we we do know, you know, Laurel and Hardy, the Three Stooges, uh Bugs Bunny and so forth. You know, Witch Hazel was the great name of I the I love character. Witch Hazel. Oh, it was tremendous, wasn't she? Yeah. And you know, so there were some of these just absolutely fantastic uh ones, but there were uh, but there were a handful of others that are so forgotten. Like that uh, Walter Futter film I mentioned before, the the one that had zombies in it. It's called he he did a series of film called Curiosities. Hmm. Was the name of the short film series? You know, there was one after the other. Curiosities, strange things of other countries. N- not not unlike uh, like a Robert L. Ripley, believe it or not, type series, or like Mondo, the Mondo films, right? Mondo oh, oh, yes, films. Yes, that yes, sounds a bit like that. Yeah. yeah, very much like that. Uh, but 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 three decades earlier, basically. Yeah. And so, yes, yes, absolutely. So there were a bunch of these that uh, uh, were fascinating. Um, and and some of them were fascinating because of the very subject matter. Some of them were fascinating because of, of the the brief intrusion of horror into an otherwise non horror narrative. Mm-hmm. Um this is a famous example, but I but I do love it. Uh, Mickey's Gala Premiere was a Mickey Mouse cartoon from the early 30s. And Mickey and Minnie show up at, a, and this is in a cartoon story, a fake story, to see one of his films on the screen. It's a red carpet event. Various stars of the period cartoon versions of them get out and walk inside, you know, the Greta Garbo's and Jimmy Durante's and, you know, these great uh, stars of the early 30s who also gets out for a brief but wonderful moment. This is what I mean by horror intruding. We see a Lugosi Dracula, a Karloff Frankenstein and a Frederick March, Mr. Hyde, all three traveling together, of course, Hmm. get out. And we see them briefly in this otherwise kind of non-horror short to go inside and, you know, and watch Mickey's new film with all of the other stars. So so there's these these great moments where horror just kind of uh, as it sometimes does in, in, in feature films, you know, even the evening news, perhaps, where there's this kind of bit of horror, real or unreal, that that kind of uh, surfaces in an otherwise non-horror story. So there's there's a lot of these that are that are absolutely delightful. Fantastic. 
Oh my gosh. Well, thank you for being here and walking us through this. What are you up to next? I know you are the series editor for Refocus, which is absolutely oh, amazing. Yeah. You guys have been putting out some amazing stuff. I'm in the Doris Wishman book. Um, and oh, we love that book. I love that book. Oh my gosh. That was, that was like my, we, we love that book and we, we love Doris Wishman and uh, we, the Refocus series is from Edinburgh university press. We have out, I think 43 books in print mm-hmm. now. Yeah. And they're on, uh, generally speaking, they're on neglected directors. Mm. You and guys have so Wes Craven coming out from... Wes Craven coming oh, gosh. out. gosh. Who's the writer on that? I love that guy. Uh, oh, that's Callum Waddell is the... Thank uh, you. Callum Waddell, yes. yeah. And and his work is fantastic. And the series is about neglected directors. Sometimes they're they're well-known like Wes Craven, but they've been neglected, neglected by scholars and critics. You know, they've been frowned upon. At times, they their neglect is uh, more universal, like Doris Wishman. Not many people know about her, although they, I think they should, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Unless they listen to this show. <laughs> then they, they hear listen, me talk about they her. listen to this show, we're good on West Craven. We love, we love Doris Wishman, including her 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 one standout horror film uh so so we love doris but but so i i i enjoy you know uh uh horror film studies even though i work in a lot of other areas my main thing now is i i did do a book that came out from edinburgh university press in 2018 called the birth of the american horror film which looked at the genre from its really from basically the lost colony of roanoke and the salem witch trials through 1915 wow. hmm in America. Hmm. So the precursors to cinema in the very first years, Edinburgh uh, has asked me to do a, an entire series follow-up. So the next in that series will be called the rise of the American horror film. And we'll cover 1916 to 1930 Hmm. and subsequent volumes, basically a decade on each. So kind of the first uh, scholarly series and, and I know that puts some people off, and maybe rightly so, because it's a bit stuffy sometimes the the academic stuff. But 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 the uh, the American horror uh, cinema, you know, decade by decade, basically. Cool. But that's one of the things I love about the refocus books is they're scholarly, but they don't read like like a tome, like an academic tome where I'm just like glazing over. Like yeah. I wrote the Doris Wishman one, like I would an article for Fangoria and nobody said anything. We, we, we <laughs> love it. We love it because I, 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 for better or worse, I have a PhD, but, but for better or worse. And I think this part is better. I started writing for film facts uh, when Forey Ackerman got me a gig there when I was 15 and uh, cult movies magazine I was writing for from the age of 18 when it was around. So we, we, we love and so much appreciate the uh, well, like Fangoria, of course, we appreciate the non-scholarly work. That's often where the best stuff is. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gary Rhodes. I have to drop that because I uh, I, I say the only thing I get, I'm going to be paying my student loans till the day that I die, but I get, you know, people occasionally call me doctor and that's the cool thing. So yeah, that's great. <laughs> Dr. Uh, that's Gary Dr. Rhodes. Or, or, you know, right. so this is great. So thank you so much for joining us tonight. Where can everybody pick up the Paul Grave Encyclopedia of Horror uh, Well, at all fine bookstores, including, of course, the monolithic, Amazon. <laughs> and I think of Amazon, I prefer to think of mermaids because I own the exact, uh, though I love the Amazon too, I I, I have the exact one sheet that's hanging on Elric's uh, oh. wall mm-hmm. uh, from Night Tide. So, My uh, favorite poster. That's, that's, 
Oh, it's one of the all-time greatest posters mm-hmm. ever made. The style B, yeah, one seat, uh, and and I I love it. Uh, but as I get totally distracted, mm-hmm. I'll come back to the Amazon and say, you can get it there. You can get it from Paul Grave or or all hopefully fine or even devious bookstores everywhere. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you ever happen to find yourself in Los Angeles. The New Beverly Cinema, which Elric and I go to regularly, still does that. It plays shorts and cartoons before most of its features. And a lot it's of them, an amazing well, luckily, thing. a lot of them are horror, like the horror, the kind of ones you're talking about, where Mickey yeah. Mouse or Donald Duck or whatever straight into horror, which is always fun. Mm-hmm. Even better. Well, that'll be my next home when I'm in Los Angeles, <laughs> and I'll look forward to seeing both of you there. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Gary. Really appreciate it. Thank you so very kindly. Have a great evening. Thanks, Gary. All right. So we just looked at a giant wave of new films in ours, and Gary brought us into the past, and that's a whole lot of shorts. Uh, That book will give you at least 1,600 short films to watch. It's a 750-page book, so, you know, you'll get your money's worth in there. Yeah, it's a lot in there, so yeah, it's fun. Um, But anyways, thank you guys so much for listening tonight. If you need more, even after all of those amazing film wrecks in there, um, you can find us on Patreon at Deep Cuts, where Elric and I talk about the weirdest of the weird stuff that we've been watching. Um, We have two new episodes coming up later this month, as well as our cheat sheets, one of which will be kind of our recommendations for like the 20 best short films um, that you can see online. They will all be ones that are available. And then we've got another cheat sheet coming up later this month. So you can find us at Deep Cuts. The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. Hurtado.